Flyover Politics Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. You just mentioned uh, political expediency and insincerity, which those are two charges that have been leveled against Democrats during this entire uh, affair, particularly since September when the formal impeachment increase started. And you, you play a starring role in those charges. I mean, the argument goes like this of, ha- of House Republicans and Trump and his allies, the president and his allies, is basically the Democrats wanted to impeach Donald Trump from day one. They cast about looking for a set of facts that they could plausibly use to do it. And all of it was pretextual and reverse engineered to get to this point. Exhibit one, Congressman Al Green, who's been calling for the man's impeachment uh, for, for two years now. What's your response to that charge? Well, the genesis of impeachment, to be very candid with you, was um, when the, the president was running for office. And he had. Mem- and welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It's the 3rd of January, year of our Lord 2020. And I started the show with that because we're not going to cover the impeachment stuff. I got some stuff on it, but I'm just going to wait. I mean, it's not going anywhere, but I just thought that was a very interesting soundbite. He goes on to say. Nothing to improve it. Liberals are fighting that talking point by conservatives because they say, well, you edited it. It doesn't improve afterwards. He admits that was, yeah, since the beginning they were going to impeach him. They believe that he is illegitimate, just like Bush, like like every Republican. They don't win elections because they can't win elections. America's demographics have changed too much, and da-da-da-da-da. So I wanted to start the show with that because, you know, let's be honest. It's obvious that's what Democrats want. But today's show, eh, it's not one of those good ones. We're going to do the uh, Iraqi embassy where I talk about some more anti-Semitic attacks and reactions, too. We're going to talk about the shooting in the church that we already covered. Uh, short news and social media nuggets, and we're going to end the show on my beloved ducks. Da, 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 da. Wow. I am so surprised they won that game. I did not think they were going to win. Um, offense was inept, but talk about complimentary football. Uh, defense and special teams pulled it through. So, um, Without a bumper, we're going to go into Military Corner first because I want to cover the reactions that were just as they would be expected and the military reactions to the attack on our embassy by, as the media are calling them, mourners. I didn't know terrorists were mourners. اول شيء محتصمين سلمين ناس سلمين احتصاما كباب شهداءنا راحوا ليش هم يجون يعني يجون يضربون طلقات ذبوا علينا ماي وكل هذا احنا سلمين ذبوا هذا خانيات نعم هذا خانيات 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 هذ
ليش ليش شنو السبب؟ ولد المرجعيه هاي هاي سامبو عليه هاي سامبو هاي سامبو عليه هاي سامبو هذا يخنق مو بس مثل دموع يخنق فرط شنو هاي شنو؟ ماده خنقت ماده مخدره ماده مخدره عيون عمان ما ادري احنا طلعنا انا بس عم جماعتنا شهداء عم شهداء ضيرون علينا رمان هذا الشيء يعني مشردوا من عندنا باقين غصبا عليهم وبعد سنين والعاش بابر المرجعيه وشو تسوون انت بالنسبه لنا حشره انزل بالقاع وشوف الحش يسوي بك انزل بالقاع حتى لا طيران انزل بعد تبي طالب تبتنو والله مو قادر بس خلينا نصور خلينا نصور ده اللي اللي سقطوا الزلمه يطب راجلا والله العظيم ريد العركه مقابل مو شبطيار ريد العركه لدينا رسالة نوصلها إلى ترامب وإلى السفارة العراقية في بغداد والقنصلية الأمريكية في بغداد والقنصلية في أربيل وفي البصرة احذروا فقد مسستم جنودنا ومسستم أخوتنا في السلاح والجهاد احذروا والله والله إن وصلت النار إلى داخل سفارتكم لن نبقي لكم أمريكي واحد ولا صحفي ولا إعلامي وقد عذر من أندر نحن أبناء الشهداء هذا قولنا وهذا فعلنا واعلموا اننا مع الله فمن كان مع الله سينتصر والموت لامريكا understand that arab speaking gentleman was saying they're going to kill everybody everybody in the embassy before I get into media reactions, let's just see what actually happened. The people were evacuated. Nobody was killed. Instantly, the president rushed in 100 Marines from the crisis response unit that we talked about on this show, and it sounded a little like this.
Article goes, the grunts were sent to response to a mob breaching the embassy in Baghdad. The group broke down a door and set fire to the embassy's reception room in apparent retaliation for U.S. airstrikes carried out this weekend. As people tried to scale the embassy wall, reporters said they were shouting, Death to America, down, down, USA. The breach was met with tear gas and sounds of gunfire. The U.S. Army Apaches later flew over the embassy, dropping flares. The official spoke condition anonymities, anonymities, citing ongoing developments on the ground. After that, we then d- dispatched 750 soldiers from the 82nd Airborne. An additional 4,000 troops expected to deploy as Iran tensions mount. The reason why they're saying Iran tensions is this is financed by Iran. This has nothing to do with Iraqis. This is Iranians. The IRF instantly deployed. Deployment of additional forces adds to nearly 14,000 additional American troops that have deployed U.S. Central Command Area of Operations over the last six months to confront Iranian maligned behavior. Deployment comes in the wake of five U.S. airstrikes on Sunday that target an Iran-backed militia known as Qatab Hezbollah, a group U.S. officials have blamed for a recent spate of rocket attacks. There was one today, six people killed at the Iraqi airport. The U.S. airstrikes were condemned by Iraqi government on Tuesday and mixed a Shia militant group members and their supporters attempted to stalk the embassy. U.S. Central Command also said Tuesday that a detachment of 100 Marines, which we just heard about, went there. The Marines were requested by U.S. State Department. They withdrew. Nobody was killed. But understand there have been over 11 rocket attacks slamming Iraqi bases housing coalition troops, which is why we fought back. OIR spokesman, Colonel Miles B., AH-64, protect U.S. Embassy. We have taken appropriate force protection actions to ensure the safety of American citizens, to ensure our right of self-defense. We're sending additional forces. So, just to pose that with Benghazi, I'm not going to play a soundbite. It wasn't a right-wing, scaremongering, bullshit story. They called for help. Nothing happened. There was no airstrikes. They didn't even send planes to get them the fuck out of there. We used foreign country planes. People were killed. It was a massive attack. If you don't believe that, watch 13 hours. That's all you have to do. That wasn't made by the military. That was made by Hollywood. But the instant this went down, this is what our lefty betters started doing on the media. And the Twitter response is even worse. ...are gathered right now outside of the United States' largest embassy in the world. It is in the Iraqi capital. There are reports of tear gas being fired at demonstrators. Let's find out exactly what is going on on the ground. Let's get to our Arwa Damon. She joins us with all the breaking details. This is in response to those uh, U.S. airstrikes. What can you tell us about what is happening right now? Well, Poppy, these are not your ordinary demonstrators. These are mostly individuals who are part of what's known as these 
Popular Mobilization Forces. This is a paramilitary force that is predominantly Shia and mostly made up of former Shia militia members. Among those who were just outside the gates of the U.S. Embassy are three very prominent leaders of the three most powerful or among the most powerful paramilitary forces within Iraq. And included among them is the leader of the pro-Iranian militia group that the U.S. was targeting in these strikes. These protesters attempted, according to uh, numerous reports, to try to storm the U.S. Embassy. They were throwing rocks, taking out the security cameras. They were pushed back, not um, based on what we're hearing from the necessarily front area of the embassy, but from where they were attempting to breach the wall around the back with the use of tear gas. Up until this moment, the situation has not escalated any further, but the fact that they made it to this location means that the Iraqi security forces did not stop this protest from moving forward. The area that the green zone encompasses in Baghdad has, yes, shrunk dramatically, but this particular part of it, where the U.S. Embassy is located, is still fairly well secured and meant to be fairly fortified. Normally, to get in, you need a special badge or some sort of an escort. But the Iraqi government views this paramilitary force, again, that is made up, that includes that militia that the U.S. was targeting, as being a member of the Iraqi security forces. From the government's perspective, these strikes by the United States were not against a pro-Iranian militia. They were actually against their own forces as well. The prime minister yesterday saying that the strikes also wounded um, some policemen and also wounded uh, some Iraqi soldiers as well as members uh, of that militia, Kata'ib uh, Hezbollah. So a lot of concern right now, Jim, that the situation could escalate. And if it does, it's, those consequences would potentially have very, very severe repercussions. Arwa David, thanks very much. Certainly spent a lot of time on a, uh, the ground in Iraq herself. Joining me now, Thomas. You mentioned something that we, we talked about uh, before the show started with these 750 U.S. troops going to the region. Yes. That's 750 targets, as you put it. Yes. I mean, President Trump keeps giving the gift that keeps on giving to Iran. He's sending more troops. He's attacking war heroes, people who fought ISIS, Iraqis who fought ISIS, and claiming that somehow they're just proxy puppets of Iran, when in Iraq, many of them are seen as war heroes. And so he's sparking these types of backlash against the United States, against the U.S. military presence, diplomatic presence. And this just gives Iran all sorts of assets around, around the region. In Iraq, the U.S. Embassy, the diplomats are sitting ducks. Mm. You know, many have compared it, and even President Trump has tried to not compare it to Benghazi. Yeah. But for some, it's also Saigon in Vietnam, where U.S. diplomats were forced to flee from the roof of the embassy by helicopter. How else are U.S. diplomats going to get out of Iraq today? This is all a victory for Iran, and 750 more troops just gives the Iranians and their friends more targets, either to, to shoot at or possibly even to take hostage. And that embassy, that 100-acre-wide embassy, really is a symbolic sort of... It's it's symbolic of, of the U.S.'s enduring presence in Iraq, is it not? And, you know, it's not seen as the presence of a friend. Mm. To have 100 acres in the heart of your capital, the beating heart of the Arab and Muslim world, Baghdad, that is... It's, it's an occupier. It is an enduring symbol of an occupier. And even Iraqis who are angry at Iran don't like that either. And so what we see happening, and this is the real strategic 
problem for the United States is that U.S. troops are going to leave Iraq. They're either going to be forced mm. out by Iran's friends in a horribly humiliating defeat, or it's going to be a negotiated settlement. And Trump really needs to get onto the negotiating track and negotiate his way out of there. Otherwise, his 2020 election campaign is going to be like Jimmy Carter's 1980, where he's forced out of the presidency by Iran. Uh, but these American airstrikes in the region, they've resulted in the most serious political crisis in years for the U.S. in Iraq. You've got them you know, stoking anti-Americanism, potentially giving an advantage to Iran uh, in its competition for influence in Iraq. Yeah. So, uh, Ambassador Hill, what's your biggest concern as you watch what's playing out right now in real time? Well, my biggest concern is I think the, the U.S. government has a kind of cartoon image of what is happening in that part of the world. And essentially, it's to blame Iran for everything. There is no question that there's an organic relationship between these Shia uh, militia groups and Iran, especially Iran's Quds Force. It's a very uh, malign influence in Iraq. But I think the question that needs to be asked is, does the U.S. government have any policy worthy of the name? Is, is uh, blaming Iran for for everything going to suffice is the idea that we're going to go uh, attacking from the air. I mean, these were F-16s dropping this ordinance. Uh, these uh, these Iraqi staffed, albeit Iranian-backed, uh, militia groups. So one has the sense that this is heading to no better place. And, of course, the administration has zero interest in any type of real um, uh, diplomatic, uh, diplomatic uh, negotiation with the Iranians apart from kind of demanding a sort of tactical surrender on their part. So these are tough times, and one worries whether the administration has the sort of horsepower and uh, brain power to deal with it. Well, at, at present, far from leaving, more U.S. troops are actually entering the region. So as we see this cycle of violence between uh, the U.S. and Iranian-backed uh, factions, where could this take us? What's next? Yeah. To our adversaries, does it appear that President Trump is vulnerable right now when you look at him facing impeachment and an election? I think the Iranians are going to continue um, putting this pressure on us no matter what, right? No matter impeachment, no matter election. Um, I think, interestingly, the Iranians and the North Koreans want two different things here, right? Yeah. The Iranians want a Democrat in the White House in 2021. The North Koreans want President Trump there. Um, it's a very interesting difference. And if I read you correctly, the Democrats might be favored by Iran because a Democrat might re-enter that nuclear agreement. Exactly. All right, Michael, thank you very much. You're welcome. That is some disgusting ass shit. Joy Reid sums it up. This is her tweet. As Trump's Benghazi unfolds in Iraq. Well, let's get two things straight. I thought Benghazi was fake. It was a fake scandal. It was partisan. The dear leader, oh, holy one, Barack Hussein Obama did nothing wrong. Hillary Clinton did everything she could. And that ending, once again, because the media doesn't want to make Obama look bad, and they don't report shit. All you have to do is Google search and go to page two or three, because you're not going to get it on page one. Iran was supporting the IEDs that were killing American soldiers. So that last soundbite, they want a Democrat in the White House. Yeah, they do. Because you have Iranian leanings. You gave them a bunch of money. You had a chief of staff who was Islamist, Valerie Jarrett. I mean, God help fucking Roseanne if she'd showed a picture of a mullah 
Because that's what she was. She's Iranian. She hates America, just like Obama did. I mean, these people are disgusting. Ted Cruz, what's wrong with you? Is partisan hatred really that deep? We root for American soldiers, not against them. No, they don't. Mm-mm. John Betts, unlike Benghazi, no one under embassy was killed. Our embassy wasn't overrun. Trump didn't sit on his hands and fail to send help like Obama did. Are you an idiot? Are you just hoping your followers are? Well, they probably are. Khomeini tweeted, the guy has tweeted that we see Iran are responsible for the events of Baghdad and we will respond to Iran. First, you can't do anything. Two, if you were logical, which you are not, you'd see that your crime in Iraq, Afghanistan, have made nation hate you. David Cleon, blue check progressive, drag him, King Khomeini. When called out. Guess today I'm obligated to clarify that I'm not, in fact, a fan of Iran's supreme leader and that my Twitter reply to him urging him to drag our stupid president was meant ironically in jest. No, it wasn't. My apologies to the zero people alive who sincerely believed otherwise. Getting swarmed by mega trolls for the second time this week isn't scary, but the extent to which most of them seem ready for war with Iran is. New York Times. Or, no, he linked to a story, and I don't know where this came from. The media line. Chasing mourners at the grave. The sight of security men forcefully pushing people away from the cemetery to which they came to mourn and visit their loved ones were killed in the last round of Iranian protests shows that the regime of Tehran has lost its mind. Indeed, the regime seems to be in a state of sheer terror if it fears even the ghost of the dead. We now see how alertness levels have been raised across the entire country. The regime has cut off the Internet for 40 million users. This was, I'm sorry, a reply to this guy rooting for Iran. Security agencies are disturbing the international media and preventing them from reporting what's happening in Iran. The streets of Tehran have been flooded with police and army forces. Unlike previous rounds of demonstrations in which security forces remain vigilant yet hidden, the regime has now deployed its forces out in the open with hope of deterring people from taking the streets. Over 500 protesters have been killed, most of them young adults, and thousands of others have been arrested. The picture pictures coming from Tehran reflect... I'm sorry, it's jumbled. Where the hell is it? The pictures come from Tehran reflect the confusion and the deterioration of the regime's stability. As a case in point, there's been a a deluge of contradictory statements made by the regime officials, including political and parliamentary leaders. The government seems to have lost its credibility among its loyalists. The mullah's political intransigence can cost the Iranian people billions of dollars. Most Iranians depend on the government for jobs and subsidies and major commodities. But instead of improving people's livelihoods, the mullahs are financing internal and external political operations. Horrific scenes such as the harassment of families and mourners visiting the graves of the loved one manage to turn even some of the strongest regime proponents against the system. This this is who the Democrats support. Grant Stern. Where is Trey Gowdy's call for Benghazi-style investigation over the Iraqi embassy protest? I'm waiting. Replies. Ambassador's safe. Reinforcements have arrived. The protest was not focused on the Benghazi hearings. Honestly, proud of how many things you got wrong in one tweet. Combat vet Johnny Jones. 
Coming in the 11th hour, Grand wins worst tweet of 2019. A Benghazi-style investigation requires a Benghazi-style scandal or death toll. Neither include 100 Marines and two heavily armed Apache helicopters immediately deployed to protect vulnerable Americans. Yes, Grat, having fought in Iraq and losing my legs in Afghanistan, I fear for the 100 Marines deployed tonight and their families. I mourn for the heroes we lost in Benghazi and their families, and mostly I reject partisan acts like yourself who want it, would make light of either. Grant Stern again. I revise serious policy questions with anyone who thinks the American people don't need to know more about it. But you're just interested in insults or anything but what is unfolding and what must be done to make sure Iraq doesn't lead to a nationally national security catastrophe. Why is Iraq bad? Iraq's bad because Obama let ISIS take it over. And we half-assed helped them take it back. ISIS took it over with our own weapon systems. Politico. The Trump administration decision to deploy Marines in response to an assault on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad shows its eagerness to avoid a repeat of the Benghazi controversy that dogged the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton's State Department. They want to make this Benghazi. And it's the most hypocritical thing, because remember, Benghazi was nothing. It was just partisan politics. So says Chuck fucking Todd. And then it looks like a, uh, an inquiry, because I, I, a, a serious inquiry, because to go to Richard Clark's point, they've done a ton of these inquiries already. The House has... Uh, there's been a Senate intelligence investigation. Forget just the State Department. Uh, this the the outside investigation that the State Department asked for. Um, you know, I think that you could argue that yes, Congress should have done what it did, which is go through some of these committees. But as for the the need for the Select Committee, um, they're they're just I you know I'll hear from Republicans that say, but but there are unanswered questions. Well, no, all the questions have been answered. There's just some people that don't have the answers, that wishes the answers were sometime, somehow more conspiratorial, I guess. I, 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 what I don't understand is their focus seems to be off. Uh, have a conversation about the policy. Have a debate and investigation of whether the policy is working, to whether the response in the Arab Spring, whether we did the right thing with the light footprint in, in Libya. But the, to sit here and investigate talking points seems to be totally missing the larger point here. It's like investigating who cut down a tree, um, uh, one tree in a forest that's been burned down. You know, Nicole... See, these people are fucking hypocrites. They're just fucking hypocrites. Benghazi people died. We did nothing. We watched from the situation room. Josh Rogan... Might be a little, er I'm sorry, I need to do the replies to Politico. Holy shit, really? Americans of sovereign American territory under attack, and the only reason to send backup is to avoid bad press? That's the hot take? Then WAPO, Josh Rogan. Might be a little early for mission accomplished, Mr. President. This thing isn't over yet. Because he tweeted, the anti-Benghazi. Because that's instantly what the left did. I'm thinking it means this WAPO CNN guy is actually keeping his fingers crossed that some Americans die. I've never seen anything like this. Jennifer Rubin, with the attack on your embassy, Trump is looking more like Jimmy Carter and less like Richard Nixon. 
No, not even close, people reply. No amount of mental gymnastics you can perform will work and attempt to compare this to the Iran hostage crisis. Please do better. New York Times, AP, and Twitter, all on these lines. Hundreds of Iraqi mourners tried to storm the United States Embassy in Baghdad, shouting, Down, Down, USA, in response to deadly American airstrikes this week that killed 25 fighters. Jessica Fletcher, Iraqi mourners, and there's the spin. AP, President Trump blames Iran for breach of U.S. Embassy compound in Baghdad, calls on Iraq to protect the embassy. Their title, Iraqi mourners tried to storm U.S. Embassy. Omi Sarin, on left, list showing how Iran families in Iraq have been steadily escalating their attack on U.S. targets in recent weeks, leading up to today's attack on the embassy. On right, story from today in which Twitter says attackers are Iraqi mourning, mourners after deadly airstrikes. And you could see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22 attacks in the last few weeks. But that was the Twitter headline. That's how I found out about it. Reuters, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq and other staff were evacuated from the embassy in Baghdad for their safety, Iraqi officials said, as thousands of protesters denounced U.S. airstrikes. Militia men and military fatigue told a Rudaw reporter that they would burn the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and its consulate and her bill. CNN. Protesters attempt to storm the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad on Tuesday, skilling the walls and forcing the great gates of the compound, as hundreds have demonstrated against American airstrikes and Iran-backed militia group in Iraq. BBC, protesters set fire to guard towers, U.S. Embassy compound in Baghdad, and unrest over air attacks. Reuters again, security guards said the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad fire stun grenades at protesters outside the compound. And Iraqi security forces had made no attempt to prevent demonstrators from reaching the embassy. Oh, I guess they did. Progressive Veterans Group, Vote Vets, who brags in their Twitter bio that they've been blocked by Trump, could barely contain their excitement at the prospect of Trump facing his own Benghazi. Hey, POTUS, remember your Benghazi ranster in 2016? You're about to have your own one, unfortunately, in Iraq. Besides the fact that the ambassador has been murdered or dragged through the streets, the protests haven't been blamed on YouTube videos, but rather on the violent demonstrators themselves. Let's revisit that. Remember, this is what they said was the reason, and they even arrested an American citizen. Hey everybody, it's Jake Tapper from CNN State of the Union and factcheck.org. Today, following the release of the final congressional report on the tragedy in Benghazi, Libya on September 11, 2012, we're going to take a look at statements made by then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton publicly and compare them to what she was saying about the attack privately. On September 11, 2012, at about 10 p.m., the night of the attack, Clinton issued a statement saying that, quote, some have sought to justify this vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material posted on the internet. Now, in that statement, Clinton's referring to that online anti-Muslim video that had sparked protests elsewhere in the world. An hour later on that same day, however, Clinton sent an email to her daughter, Chelsea, that made no reference to the video. It blamed, quote, 
an al-Qaeda-like group. The day after the attack, September 12th, Clinton issued her first in-person statement, and she also referenced the video. Some have sought to justify this vicious behavior along with the protest that took place at our embassy in Cairo yesterday as a response to inflammatory material posted on the Internet. On that same day, September 12th, according to notes taken by a foreign service worker, Hillary Clinton told the Egyptian prime minister that the attack, quote, had nothing to do with the film, unquote. On September 21st, Hillary Clinton publicly called it a terrorist attack for the first time. What happened in Benghazi was a terrorist attack, and we will not rest until we have tracked down and brought to justice the terrorists who murdered four Americans. On October 15th, Hillary Clinton gave an interview to CNN in which she blamed the fog of war for why the Obama administration seemed to blame this entire incident initially on this anti-Muslim video, even though the State Department privately never thought that was the case. In the wake of an attack like this, in the fog of war, there's always going to be confusion. And I think it is absolutely fair to say that Everyone had the same intelligence. Here's the bottom line. In the thick of a tough re-election campaign in which the president was arguing that terrorists were on the run, the Obama administration was quick to cite the video and claim that this was a spontaneous attack and very slow to acknowledge what the attack on Benghazi was, a planned terrorist attack. Hillary Clinton contributed to that false impression, even though the State Department and Hillary Clinton seemed to know from the beginning that this was a terrorist attack. A reminder to all the politicians out there, you're perfectly entitled to your own opinion, not to your own facts. I'm Jake Tapper for CNN State of the Union and factcheck.org. People have uh, accused Ambassador Rice and the administration of you know, misleading Americans. I can say trying to be in the middle of this and understanding what was going on, nothing could be further from the truth. Was information developing? Was the situation fluid? Would we reach conclusions later that weren't reached initially? And, and I appreciate that. Madam Secretary, do you disagree with me that a simple phone call to those evacuees to determine what happened would have, would have ascertained immediately that there was no protest? I mean, that, that, was, that was a piece of information that could have been easily, easily obtained. Well, but, but Senator, with, with, within hours, if not days. Senator, I, you know, when you're in these positions, the last thing you want to do is interfere with any other process. Well, that's, going I, I, I realize, on, I realize that's, number I realize two, that's a good excuse. Number two, but, at, well, no, it's the fact. Number two, I would recommend highly you read both what the ARB said about it and the classified ARB because even today there are questions being raised. Now, we have no doubt they were terrorists, they were militants, they attacked us, they killed our people. But what was going on and why they were doing what they were doing? No, 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 no. Is I, still, I, I, is still I, again, again, we no. were misled that there was supposedly protests and then something sprang out of that and assault sprang out of that, and that was easily obtained, ascertained yeah. that that was not the fact. But, but and the American know, people could have known that within days, and, and they they didn't know that. With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was I it because understand. of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again. I even used Jake Tapper. He's a liberal. They blamed it on a fucking video when it was clearly an attack. Trump administration 
outright came out and said, it's Hezbollah. And as it goes on and on, oh, the media has to flip off their mourners and admit it's not because we're in the different times. When it's a conservative president, well, you just hate Muslims. When it's a Democratic president, we have to come up with excuses why, well, it wasn't malfeasance, it was incompetence, it was just, you know, this stupid guy in Florida who put up a video. Chris Murphy, attack on our embassy in Baghdad is horrifying but predictable. Trump has rendered American impotent in the Middle East. No one fears us, no one listens to us. America has been reduced to huddling in safe rooms, hoping the bad guys will go away. What a disgrace. Can you fucking believe that? That's what he said. After Obama vacated Iraq. We vacated it. I I, I just don't even know what to say. After Trump responds, attack U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, they withdraw Jerusalem Post. All members of the paramilitary groups and their supporters who have been protesting against U.S. airstrikes in Iraq have withdrawn from the perimeter of the U.S. Embassy um, by Wednesday. President Trump's response to threat against the U.S. Embassy stands in stark contrast to Obama's administration's response to Benghazi on September 11, 2012, when four Americans, including Ambassador Stevens, were murdered by terrorists storming the Benghazi Libya. I saw people online arguing, well, the ambassador wasn't killed, he died of smoke inhalation. If I start a fire and a black person dies, and because I'm white in these times where all white people are racist, I did it because I'm a white supremacist and I killed them. But when it's Obama and we want to protect him, oh, that was just an accidental death. Okay. Peter Ferrara wrote in Forbes in 2012, the Obama administration received requests for additional security for the embassy and Stephen as early as February and August 2012, Stephen Scable sent a cable requesting 11 bodyguards. He pointed out the Wall Street Journal report on October 10th that the administration removed a well-armed 16-member security detachment. Ferreira stated documents released by a House Oversight Committee the day of the attack on the American Consul Benghazi. The White House Situation Room started receiving emails at 1 p.m. that the mission was under hostile surveillance. At 4 p.m., Washington receives an email from Benghazi mission that's under military attack. Just one hour flight away were U.S. Air Force bases that could have arousted in minutes to send fighter planes and attack helicopters that could have routed the attackers in minutes. The Obama station later claimed the attack by terrorists Benghazi was triggered by video. Got to bring this all out. Do you want to use this as... Political fodder to get re- you know your candidate elected. Well, let's get facts. Trump administration, on the other hand, responded to a threat of the U.S. embassy by sending military force. We covered it. We brought in more people. Now we have all sorts of backup people. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted, Iran killed an American contractor, wounding many. We strongly responded and always will. Now Iran is orchestrating an attack on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. They will be held for fully responsible addition. We expect Iraq to use its force to protect the embassy, and so notified. Lindsey Graham, no Benghazi on his watch. Very proud of the president, acting decisively in the face of threats to our embassy. He has put the world on notice. There will be no Benghazi on his watch. The Iranian government, be careful what you wish for. A country that depends on ability to refine oil for its existence needs to be cautious. 
Trump, unlike Obama, will hold you accountable for threats against Americans and hit you where it hurts the most. Choose your battle wisely. To our Iraqi allies, this is your moment to convince the American people the U.S.-Iraq relationship is meaningful to you and worth protecting. Protect our personnel. You will not regret it. I have all the other timelines. I'm not going into it. I'm just not. I'm just not. It is the forever, the left roots for our enemies. They hope for failure when the president is a Republican. And when they fail with their presidents, they say it's all bullshit and the media spins it. My, my original, original intent was to now play Chuck Todd once again, talking about the misinformation pipeline. And once again, without alternative websites to go to, you would know none of this. You would truly believe they are mourners, that the Trump administration is harassing poor citizens that have done nothing wrong, but their constitution, oh wait, they don't have a constitution. Well, they kind of do, but it's not ours. Right to protest. When it's Iran, the people Obama gave pallets of cash to, finger-fucking in Iraq. I, I I just don't understand. I and most middle Americans criticized Obama. We did not hope for failure. But the left and the media, Carter, Nixon, they want everything to be used for political capital for Democrats. And if a bunch of Americans die, oh, fucking well, that's great. We can do another impeachment inquiry and try to twist that he got a letter. I mean, the the shit that cracks me up, if you really go back to September 11th, they used a briefing that Bush heard that they they believe they're going to try to weaponize aircraft with no proof or anything going on and bashed him forever. They're still bashing him. They blame him for September 11th. Their supporters said that Bush and Cheney wired the fucking buildings and blew them themselves. But then Benghazi happens. Oh, it's it's just a YouTube video. And now when it happens to Trump, it's his foreign policy. He brought this on. Yeah. By killing people that had done 22 attacks to the Iraqi government. In the words of Sergeant Barnes, I shit on all of you. I just shit on all of you. You're fucking sorry, people. You're pathetic. You're partisan. And our media once again shows themselves for what they are. And I love, the only thing I love about this whole incident I don't love the incident, but I love that it happened on the heels of Chuck Todd rolling out a, it's a misinformation pipeline. Yes, it is, Chuck. And that pipeline, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, PBS, MSDNC, New York Times, WAPO, you're the disinformation pipeline. You haven't reported straight up since the goddamn 50s. To a music break, uh, 
going to play our, my favorite songs from the year, and so I'm going to start out with this little Nas song. It's not age appropriate, but I truly did like it. And then we'll come into anti-Semitic. Yeah, we've had more attacks. We've had people released that attack more people. And as you come in, you're just going to hear a long soundbite. That's all Trump's fault. The black Israelites chopping people in machetes? Yeah, Trump's fault. White supremacy. Even though they're black. Why we stop? When you see a black man on a horse going that fast, you just gotta let him fly. You're right. That's a horse horse. That is a horse horse. Uh, Daddy? That was rough. It should be fine. We'll settle in here for the night. I don't know, man. And last time I was here, they weren't too welcoming outsiders. Yeah, you with me this time. Everything's gonna be all right. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse, you can whip your Porsche. I've been in the valley, you ain't been up off that porch. Now, can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Riding on a track. Got me a song, good. You cheated, though. That horse got like a V12, but I ain't even worried about it. I just hit a flock and I'm, uh, I see you before you from Compton, right? Huh? Huh? I'm sorry. Hey, Quan, huh? get the children off the animal, please. That's his property. We don't, we don't do that. You know what I mean? I apologize about that. You have a good day. Get off my car. Ain't nobody tell me nothing. Can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Can't tell me nothing. Yeah, I'm gonna take my Take my horse to the hotel road, I'm gonna ride till I can't no more I'm gonna take my horse to the hotel road, I'm gonna ride till I can't 
down cross town, living like a rock star. Spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar. Baby's got a habit, diamond rings and Fendi sports bras. Riding down Rodeo in my Maserati sports car. Got no stress, I've been through all that. I'm like a Marlboro man, so I kick on back. Wish I could roll on back to that old town road. I wanna ride till I can't go. Let, let me say that we've gathered this morning because over the last several days there has been several attacks and incidents against members of the Jewish community. If it had been attacks against the members of the black community, we would have stood up and spoke out. We cannot remain silent as we see a consistent pattern of attacks against people based on their faith and based on who they are. And therefore, we wanted to convene to say you can't fight hate against you unless you are willing to fight hate against everyone else. You cannot be anti-hate and pro-civil rights only one way. An atmosphere of hate has been developing in this country over the last few years. A lot of it is emanating from Washington and is having an effect on all of Wait, us. Wait, so you're saying you're blaming the president by saying Not it's just from Washington. I'm saying, but we have to be clear, we need a different tone starting in Washington, okay, which so we had, by the way, with Democrats and Republicans both in the White House, that encouraged this country to actually find some unity and some common ground. We okay. haven't had that for the last few years. Let's talk about your record. There's something specific going on here with the eight attacks I mentioned around New York City. Several of the suspects arrested in these anti-Semitic attacks have all been released on bail because of something that's called bail reform. But your administration is already implementing it, even though it's not really starting until January. If the victim, in this case Jewish, but it could be anybody in the city, is not, quote-unquote, injured, they can be released out in the neighborhood. And one of those folks, Tiffany Harris, 21 charges of menacing, harassment, and attempted assault charges. She punched and cursed three Orthodox women, as you know. She allegedly shouted, F you Jews. She was released. Her court okay. date is not until January 10th. Mr. Mayor, how do you defend that? This is exactly the same system that has existed for years and years. There's a whole attempt here, no, not directed at you, uh -huh. but in the discourse. But the facts of that are form. true. I, I'm going to stake you to that. I don't know every single fact about that case, but let's be clear about this. 
Traditionally, people go before a judge, and the judge gives them a bail figure, and they make bail, they're out on the street. That's a huge percentage of people historically, so let's not kid ourselves here. The folks who ended up being held in on that kind of offense couldn't make bail because they didn't have the money to do it. The ones who had money got back on the street. That's part of the American system. We should not kid ourselves here and act like the state's decision on bail reform. It was not my administration. It was the state of New York. But I'm told but, that your administration is now implementing it. This yeah, is New York Post. This is for- already happening because it's starting on January. So why is she on the streets? It, what I'm trying to get across to you here is someone like that would have most likely been on the streets anyway because they would have posted bail. If the only reason someone is held in the judge does not believe that they present an immediate threat. And the only reason they're held in is they don't have enough money to make bail. That is not helping anyone. That's just putting a lot more people in our jail system. That's not good for uh, ending mass incarceration. That's not good for the taxpayer. Let's get clear on what's going on here. We have a problem. We're not going to jail our way out of the problem. We need tough consequences. We need a lot of police presence. If someone commits a hate crime, what we need is the prosecution right. that leads. We are fomenting hate. We are fomenting division. We are pointing fingers. We are blaming. Rather than dealing with problems, we're scapegoating. Uh, the problem is this. The problem is that. And we are demonizing each other, Candace. Uh, I call it an American cancer because it's one cell in the body politic attacking other cells. Mm. And we're taking our differences and we're making them a weakness. And this is a nation of differences. Once we start pointing fingers, where do we stop? The only Native people to America were Native Americans. If you're anything else, you came here from somewhere else. Who's pointing out those differences? Uh, Does it start at the top? um, It it starts at the top, uh, and then it goes on to a point where it becomes viral across this nation. And it is now viral. And you see it uh, coming to the surface in different manifestations from coast to coast. Well, and we, we're comforted calling, treating it as isolated episodes, but there's a pattern to all of this, and it spells hate. Let me, let me talk to you really quickly about uh, President Trump, because he attacked New York, as you know, yesterday. And he attacked you personally in a series of tweets about the city's homeless population. He said in part that uh, you have lost control and your mind. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, what do you make? What can anyone make of uh, President Trump's tweets, right? They say more about the sender than anything else. Uh, New York, he believes, is a democratic state, and this is how he, uh, he, he plays to his partisan base by demonizing Democrats. Uh, Democrats are evil. Democrats are bad. Democrats have lost their mind. They're anti-American. You foment that hate. And then you're shocked when you see these episodes of hate all across the country. Uh, that has now become the dialogue and the currency of this nation. And it's in politics. But it then it, it resonates out of the politics into society. And now you see people who are acting out on those hateful acts, and people are impressionable. Uh, and some people are lost, and some people are vessels, and some people are ill. And they mm. hear it, and they respond. Quite a bit of words right there. Hate has become the dialogue and the currency of the USA. Uh- Acts of extremism, hate crimes, have been alarmingly on the rise for some time now in the media that 
a lot of the president's supporters consume, in the media that the president himself often speaks to, their use of these terms like describing uh, immigrants as invaders. The Times has looked at some of this, and there is a correlation between the way that the Conservative radio hosts discuss uh, or talk about denigrate immigrants the way they talk about uh, white people being replaced by migrants and and and, and violence against. Uh, the, remember the El Paso shooting at Walmart. I mean, there there that the language in that shooter's manifesto was often word for word what you would hear on some primetime Fox News program or from the president of the United States or from the president of the United States. Eddie- yeah, that was Al. Fucking Sharpton. Sharpton. Pin the yarmulke back. Sharpton. Hangs out with Farrakhan. Sharpton. Then you had Bill de Blasio, and uh, he was on multiple times. I could play it all sorts of sound bites. And him literally just blaming Trump for his city. Beating up on Hasidic, Hasidic Jews. It's his city. It's been going on for a while. They don't report it, Chuck Todd, and your fucking ecosystem of disinformation. I mean, that was just all sorts of wrong. But here's more. CBS, NBC, they just skip. They're just continually skipping the fact that it was a black Hebrew. Linda Ronstadt talking about Hitler, a soundbite about the guy, he's, he fucking pled not guilty for hatcheting motherfuckers, but there was one soundbite, and it was on fucking CNN, which kind of blew my mind, calling out the double standard. Tonight, hate crime charges filed against 38-year-old Grafton Thomas, accused of stabbing five people with a machete during Hanukkah celebrations in the New York suburb of Muncie. Investigators say journals recovered from Thomas's home appear to express anti-Semitic sentiments and refer to the black Hebrew Israelite movement, some of its members espousing hatred toward Jews. Prosecutors say there were also references to Hitler, drawings of a Star of David, and a swastika. It comes just weeks after three people were killed at this kosher grocery store in Jersey City. One of the suspects posting anti-Semitic comments online and expressing interest in the black Hebrew Israelite movement. In Thomas's car, agents recovered a machete, a knife, and a phone, showing searches for local temples and an article about security in the wake of recent anti-Semitic attacks. From the 37-year-old's home, investigators say they recovered handwritten journals expressing anti-Semitic sentiments and references to the black Hebrew Israelite movement, which asserts they are the true descendants of ancient Israelites and Jews are interlopers. The teachings of the same group were connected, says a law enforcement official, to the attack on a kosher market in New Jersey earlier this month. Do you feel any remorse? Do you feel bad at all? Do you care? Tonight, our first look at 37-year-old Grafton Thomas, the suspect in the brutal stabbing in Muncie, New York, now facing five counts of attempted murder. He's pleaded not guilty to all counts. On Saturday night, a Hanukkah celebration turned into an evening of horror as a suspect stormed a rabbi's home packed with adults and children. Medicine 5, go ahead and head in. They're reporting uh, 
serious injuries. Witnesses say he began stabbing at random, injuring five, before running next door to the synagogue. He came in with a big sword, knife, machete, I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. He started wielding it, he pulled it out of the holder and started wielding it at people right and left. Officials have not announced a motive, but the brazen crime has shaken this large Orthodox Jewish community on edge after a spate of anti-Semitic attacks in the New York, New Jersey area, at least a 10th incident in just the last week. It seems like it's open season against Jews here in New York City. New York's governor has directed police to increase patrols in Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods around the state. I consider this an act of domestic terrorism. Let's call it what it is. These people are domestic terrorists. Just hours ago, the president tweeting, we must all come together to fight, confront, and eradicate the evil scourge of anti-Semitism. On this final night of Hanukkah, a call for peace, while community moves forward with resilience in the wake of darkness. And Kathy, what more can you tell us about the victims tonight? Well, Peter, officials are saying all the victims were Hasidic men and they were rushed to the hospital with stab wounds. One person is still in critical condition with a skull fracture. I've read that you have read a lot about the, the, uh, about, uh, the, the, the Weimar Republic in Germany and you sort of see parallels between then and now. Well, great parallels. I mean, the intelligentsia of Berlin and the literati and the, all the artists were just busy doing their thing. And there were a lot of chances that Hitler rose to power, there were a lot of chances to stop him, and they didn't speak out. And the industrial complex thought that they could control him once they got him in office, and of course he was not controllable. By the time he got established, he put his own people in place and you know, stacked the courts and did what he had to do to consolidate his power. And we got Hitler, and he destroyed Germany. He destroyed centuries of intellectual history, forward and backward. The, you know, the people like Beethoven and Goethe and Thomas Mann, became jokes, they became Nazi laughingstock. I think a lot of people, though, would, would, would be surprised to hear comparisons between what happened then and, and, and now. If you read the history, you won't be surprised. It's exactly the same. Get, 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 find a common enemy for everybody to hate. When I was sure that Trump was going to get elected the day he announced. And I said, he's gonna, it's going to be like Hitler and the Mexicans are the new Jews. Hmm. And sure enough, that's what he delivered, you know. When I went to Jersey City the day after that attack, there was not a single flower or a single condolence card. I went up and down the street asking people to say something about the attack that had happened on their neighbors, and it was all I could do to get people to say that they were sorry for what had happened. Um, that's really, really disturbing to me. And what it tells you is that in certain cases, uh, when the person is wearing a MAGA hat or when they can be connected to the alt-right, that's sort of a clean case, right? It's someone who we all, people of conscience, see as a villain. But what happens when the person who's an attacker is someone that we, or in ways, when I say we, I mean we, people of conscience, see as someone who themselves is part of a victimized group? It seems then that a lot of people don't know how to make sense of that. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges we have is that we keep wanting to use anti-Semitism or racism as a cudgel against our political opposites, forgetting that anti-Semitism exists across the political spectrum. Uh, you know, there are a lot of famous instances of the far right and the far left coming together on the subject of hating Jewish people. Um, you see Nation of Islam ma making common cause with George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the American Nazi Party back in the early 1960s. And a lot of the most virulent anti-Semitism comes from Nation of Islam and some of its acolytes. And so I think that 
One of the challenges we face is that you know, anti-Semitism is a bipartisan issue. It is an all-partisan issue. It is not an issue that is just connected to one particular racial group. It is something that infects and morphs and defigures people and communities. And it's something that we have to be ready to speak out against because one of the things that's been really horrifying about these attacks that have been taking place in New York State and elsewhere against Jewish people is that the only similarity has been the subject of the hate. You know, the people have been different. You know, there, some have been people of color, some have been white, though that that doesn't really matter when all of the victims are Jewish people, specifically people who are Orthodox. Right. And I think that that's people worth noting. Visible. Now that soundbite sums it up. It's a cudgel. The media only wants to do it when it can hurt Republicans. Yet Chuck Todd wants to go, I'm going to reference it for a couple of weeks till I get it out of my system. Disinformation. We're talking about disinformation. We say it's only a conservative thing, but we're not touching this shit because he's a black guy. And it's not one attack, it's two attacks. It's a shooting in Jersey. It's this. Another African-American suspect in New York City anti-Semitic attack released, arrested after another attack. A woman was arrested for allegedly committing an anti-Semitic attack on three Jewish women on Friday and New York City was released without having to post bail and has since been arrested again for committing another act of violence that reportedly happened today. The day after she was released without bail on charge stemming from Friday's attack, Tiffany Harris, African-American woman, was charged with assault for slugging a 35-year-old in the face on East Parkway near Underhill Avenue at 9.15 a.m., it's unclear if Sunday's victim is Jewish and police weren't treating the incident as a hate crime. The victim suffered swelling and bruising to her right eye from the pummeling. Andy NGO. <clears throat> First images of some of the suspects who were arrested in New York in retaliation to the violent hate crimes against Jewish people. They're being quickly released and did not have to pay bail under a new criminal justice reform law, which means because they're black, they don't have to be punished. Uh, Bill de Blasio was blasted during a Fox News interview on Sunday, which I already played, over the incident and over a soft stance on crime. Ed Henry ripped de Blasio for increasing in, increase in anti-Semitic attacks in New York City. So the suspect arrested in these anti-Semitic attacks have also been released on bail because of something they called bail reform. But your administration is already implementing it, even though it's not really starting until January. The victim in the case, Jewish, but it could be anybody in the city, is not, quote, unquote, injured, they can be released out in the neighborhood. Henry then called out to Blasio over the case involving Harris. And one of the folks, Tiffany Harris, 21, charged of menacing harassment and attempted assault charges. She punched and cursed three Orthodox women, as you know. She allegedly shouted, F you Jews. She was released. Her court date is not until January 10th, Mr. Mayor. How do you defend that? Exactly the same system that existed for years and years is a whole attempt here, not directed at you, but in the but in the fact of that but the facts of that are true, Henry interjected. Henry later slammed Abazio for implementing the bail policy which was passed by Democrat controlled state government. Let's get clear on what's going on here. We have a problem. We're not going to jail our way out of problems. We need tough consequences. We need a lot of police presence. Matthew Foldy, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and his legislator passed a bail reform measure that Bill DeMazio implemented early and let Tiffany Harris attack Jewish women out instantly today. DeBlasio somehow defends his support of it. Later in the interview, DeBlasio was 
press for giving alleged criminals, or at least without even having to post bail, Metro cards to ride around the subway, subway, two debit cards with $25 each, and a burner cell phone. It sounds kind of like soft on crime, Henry said. No, it's not. It's trying to get people out of crime and keep them out of crime. Look, if you want us to do what we have done for decades, which breeds career criminals, which ensured a lot of people are locked up and that only made them worse, we could keep doing that. But, Mr. Mayor, what if they take the Metro car and then they go beat up more people before they go to court? You don't think that happens? We're missing the forest of the trees, he responded. How so? You give a criminal a Metro card. Tiffany Harris, who said F Jews and beat up three Jewish women, she got a Metro card. And she will have a trial. I don't know what happened with her. That's not the point. She'll have a trial, as all Americans would do. The trial will determine the consequences of the punishment. Bill de Blasio says giving people like Tiffany Harris, who slapped three Jewish women in the face and shouted, fuck you, two debit cards and a burner cell phone upon release is not soft on crime. If they attack more people in bail, it's missing the forest through the trees. I will guarantee you, if you're white in New York and you're pulled in, you're not getting those two debit cards, a Metro card, and a burner phone. I'm I'm almost positive you're not. Washington Post. Perspective. Why President Trump's executive order to fight anti-Semitism is dangerous for Jews. When Jewishness has to been has been defined as a nationality or race and is enabled persecution. So he wants to fight it, but because he wants to do the right thing, it's now the wrong thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Okay, sounds good. So WAPO did do one thing, which was linked to that soundbite I paid of Sharpton. Al Sharpton is not a lifelong fighter for justice. Democrats have rushed to his side this week, but he's never reckoned with this past anti-Semitic rhetoric, and it's done by Seth Mandel, so it's a conservative guy. not going to read it, but it... Pretty much sums it up. Then you have NBC New York got raked over the coals for their shameful take on already badly framed AP article on the increase in anti-Semitic attacks in New York. NBC4, with the expansion of Orthodox communities outside New York City, has come civic sparring, and some fear the recent violence may be an gr- outgrowth of that conflict. So the Jews just didn't stay where they're supposed to stay. We are deleting an earlier tweet regarding a story on the recent anti-Semitic attacks in tri-state area. A new tweet follows. We regret the error. Byron York. The latest from Joe NBC. One should never compare Trump rise directly to that of German fascism. But, and this is all happening at the same time, there are lessons that can be drawn from every area. Sebastian Hafner, 1939 memoir, Defying Hitler, spoke of influencers initially dismissed the Nazi party for its violent stupidity. Much like Trump's critics mocked the reality star's candidacy with a chuckle, the sign of life skit with Hillary Clinton laughing at her good fortune for drawing Trump as a political opponent comes to mind. I was inclined not to take them very seriously, Hafner wrote in 1939, a common attitude among their inexperienced opponents, which helped them a lot. The German journalist and lawyer observed that while the violent abuse could be directed, a cursory review of Auschwitz or Dachau history reveal how the evil of Hitler's reign does not remotely compare to the current state of U.S. politics. The cost of 
liberalism spread in the age of Trump may be better understood by studying the erosion of democratic norms and recap tape Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey, or Viktor Orban's Hungary. I just fucked somebody's name up. Or the further strengthening of China and Russia autocratic regimes. But we should still remain mindful that the failure of Germany's political, financial, and media elites to serve as a bulwark against the illiberal impulses that seized the country then mirrors the failure of American leaders initially to grasp the consequences of Donald Trump. Three years later, the question remains of how best to respond to the threat. Why did I read that? Every Republican's a Nazi. Every Republican, sexist, racist, transphobe, homophobe, and a Nazi, and they're anti-Semitic. Yet, in New York, the blue state of all blue state, they've been beating on fucking Jews for years. We've been talking about it on this podcast. And when it happens, the media ignores it. That ecosystem of truth doesn't want to touch it because it's a black person. I mean, last podcast, we pl- they want to eradicate white people, the black Israelites. There's yet to be coverage of that. They didn't cover it at Covington. They're not covering it now. They don't even say the race. It's that implicit bias. We don't say D when a Democrat fucks up. We don't say I mean, we would say white supremacist. Technically, he's a black supremacist, but we don't say that because black people can't be racist. They have the whole world believing that. But that's not true. Every race has prejudice. Every race has racist tendencies. It's the lowest common denominator of human conduct. When things don't go your way, you blame it on somebody else. And it usually is blamed on their race. But lefties believe they're above this shit. Lux Appletrom. To me, the difference between right and left anti-Semitism is that the right just straight up hates Jews, while the left is critical of Jewish participation in the ruling class without critical analysis of how the long history Jewish marginalization complicates the participation. Oh, since it sounds like a bunch of dum-dums have found this tweet, my point is the left-wing anti-Semitism is more about hating banks, landlords, whatever, and are not actually having any nuanced read or awareness of why Jews have historically wound up in those fields. Now, I'm not saying that Jews are controlling the world. I am explaining why shit-talking landlords can come across as anti-Semitic. Love to tweet for an audience with zero reading comprehension and critical thinking ability, easily rivaled by that of my toddler, Niece. Also, it's hilarious that people somehow think of being anti-Semitic while describing and calling out anti-Semitism. No, you're not. You're explaining, hey, we, we're being anti-Semitic for good reasons. The right just does it because they hate people. Well, I don't think that black Israelite chopped those fucking people off because of landlords. I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, there have been people kill landlords over shit, but I don't think that's it. But this is what they do. We're handing burner phone, phones, credit cards, and metro cards to criminals. Just hand it away. Because if we give them money, maybe they won't steal money. Oh, that's a great concept. Fuck, I'm going to move to New York and just, fuck it, I'm just going to start stealing everything. 
Figure I get 10 or 12 trips to the jail, buy myself a new car. But California is doing the same thing with illegals. They're letting them go. And when ICE gets them, everybody gets angry. California governor, governor under fire after paroled immigrant murder convict immediately taken into ICE. Pro-sanctuary state governor Gavin Newsom had come under fire from left-wing immigrant rights group for choosing to work with ICE. It's deeply disappointing that the governor is choosing to work with ICE, said Asian Law Caucus attorney Anup Prasad. As, a, as reported by the Los Angeles Times, Newsom deeply disappointing action, according to Prasad and other immigrant right activists, is his decision to allow a paroled immigrant who served two decades behind bar for murder to be handed over to federal immigration authorities, a process Prasad decries is unjust and illogical and tearing apart communities in California. I doubt he handed him to them. ICE was just there when he got out because he should have been deported to begin with. If you Californians would think for a second, if they're a criminal and they murdered people, why do you want to pay for them in jail? Send them back to Mexico. It's a money issue. You wouldn't let that money just go out to, like, buy guns for soldiers. Fuck that. Fuck that war shit. To the shooting. You knew it was coming, and USA Today did not let us down. USA Today op-ed on church shooting, terrifying that parishioners were armed. The media won't concede that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Even when armed churchgoers stop a gunman and prevent a mass shooting this past Sunday, some callous journalists use this event as a way to argue for more gun control. In an op-ed picked by USA Today, January 1st, editor, columnist, the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, Elvia Diaz turned the parishioners who heroically drew their weapons on the shooter into the villains. Diaz only could see that the man who killed the shooter was a hero because he met her standards of someone who should own, who should own a gun. She immediately lamented how this story has been utilized by the right. Jack Wilson is a hero, all right? It took him only six seconds to kill a gunman in a Texas church, saving countless lives. Unfortunately, the kind of split-second heroism has been turned into a PR tool by gun advocates. Because remember, nothing's about right and wrong facts. It's all emotions. And if something like this happens, in all these cases, with the black Israelites and fucking Trump actually repelling an attack on an embassy and not letting everybody killed... Oh, God damn, that's going to help him. We can't have that happening. The reality of Wilson's heroism is a lot more complex. He wasn't just an ordinary parishioner, as a gun advocate may want you to believe. Church volunteer security team members, a firearms instructor, gun range owner, and a former reserve deputy with the local sheriff department, according to the New York Times. In other words, he's exactly the kind of man you want around with a firearm. According to the New York Times. So you see what happened there, right? They didn't report on the story... To show him as a hero, they were doxing him. They were praying to God somehow we can find that he is a fucking deplorable. And we could take the wind out of this, oh, he's a hero. We could take it out. Ah, you know, he did a good thing there, but he voted for Trump. I mean, that's what they were looking for. Yet Diaz was aghast that these other armed parishioners were also ready to save lives. But we know nothing about the least six other parishioners who also appeared to draw their handguns. And that's terrifying. Despite acknowledging that more lives would have been lost had good guys with a gun not been ready, she went on to question whether Americans really needed guns. But we have 
But have we really reached a point where each of us needs to carry a firearm anywhere we go? Diaz wrote before downplaying the brave actions of these armed parishioners. We know firearms are readily available to anyone who wants one, really, and that's part of the problem. Sunday shooting is just about Jack Wilson's heroism. It's about how Kinnaman got a hold of a weapon in the first place, giving his criminal record. She griped to the end of the op-ed. Yeah. The tweets. Opinion. Jack Wilson is exactly the type of person you want around with a gun because he's a firearm instructor. But we know nothing about at least six other prisoners who also appear to draw their handguns, and that's terrifying. People's reply. What we know about the Texas gun owner who drew their weapon. None of them fired if the shooter was down. None of them fired erratically. None of them shot another person by accident. That's why this is terrifying. Yeah, because it worked. The only thing they killed was a 12-year narrative. This thing that didn't happen, it doesn't happen, could have happened. So we're actually right. Yeah, exactly. We say, oh, these people will just kill other people. It didn't happen. Fuck, our narrative's fucked. Another response. In response to this depraved article, I'm donating money to gun owners of America. Corporate media presents the NRA as unapologetic gun nuts when, in fact, they often compromise on rights, not wanting to work with defense and distributes. Defense distributed, for example. GOA are the unapologetic gun nuts. Another reply. This incident is terrifying because it proves our narrative is wrong about gun owners and their ability to stop shooting before police arrives. So the NRA, of course, said, the NRA extends our deepest sympathies to the family of Texas shooting. We would also like to thank Jack Wilson of his heroic action. Jack's a hero. America's great because of selfless patriots like Jack. Thank you, Jack. Your courage saved many lives. Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, the NRA's celebration of church shooting is grotesque. I just want to pause for a second and think about that. There is still blood on the ground when the left goes into anti-gun mode. It's on the ground. They go right into it, man. Oh, fuck. We can't have that. We can't let them cool. Families cannot be notified before we start talking. Somebody's response to her, you misspelled celebration of heroic action that saved countless lives. So uh, celebrating lives being saved is a bad thing? Exercising constitutional rights a bad thing? Yeah, it is. Tom Nichols, supposed conservative, goes on a big screen. Gun nut conservatives, liberals worry too much about guns. They want to ban them because they just weenies who have no fear guns. Also, gun nut conservatives, people shooting it out in a church is so common that we should all be packing in the pews every Sunday morning. No, gun advocates don't say that. Liberals posing as conservatives create straw men who say that. What we say is we should be able to carry and protect ourselves anywhere we like. And one church shooting is enough to prove our point, and there is no downside to us caring. His reply, one, two, or three, even three shootings is not enough to prove your point. I agree that you have the right to weapon. I just wish you wouldn't carry it anywhere because I think there's more risk to the rest of us. Of course there are downsides to carrying a weapon. Your two and three prove every other conservative point today about your gun stance. You are safer. My friends and I are armed. Your danger comes in a room where no good guys are. If you don't do not believe that, please don't call yourself pro-gun. I am pro-gun, he says. I'm a pro-constitution. I accept that you have the right to do things I think are unwise. And the last place I want to be in a room is with you and your gun-toting pals. Not because I wouldn't want to hang and argue and butt heads with you guys, but I try not to hang out with guys who carry who aren't cops or retired L.E. 
Not my mm, cultural background. Sure, seems to be a lot of bragging and bloviating about it right here. And I am never going to think it's normal or healthy for an average citizen to walk around the supermarket with a gun on their hip. He pulls one example of some guy missing. Guy goes, good thing Google was able to find that one example from three years ago. Stephen Gutowski, 71-year-old Jack Wilson is a hero who extended an attack on Texas church yesterday. He's a fire instructor, former reserve deputy, and volunteer head of the church's security. Note that the Washington Examiner got it right about the hero being a firearms instructor because Reuters originally ran with the story that the assailant trained churchgoers at the range. Ryan Savandra. Here we go again with the media falsely accusing the evil attacker in yesterday's church shooting of being an owner of a gun range. It was the good guy who owned the gun range. Reuters had to retract the BS story. The media always lies about guns and their owners. Story on a sale in Texas church training worship is withdrawn. Problem is, as usual, it was retweeted 24,000 times. And the retraction, uh, yeah, wasn't. Everybody on the thread, why is it always retractions are always retracting negative stories on the right. Why? Anybody? Why is that? Oh, I know, because they never report negative stuff on the Dems. There it is. Beto O'Rourke! Doing exactly what I said. I could bring out Shannon Watson and a bunch. I'll just do O'Rourke. So sad to hear about another church shooting in Texas. This one is in White Settlement near Fort Worth. Clearly what we are doing in Texas, what we are doing in this country when it comes to guns, is not working. Katie Pavlich. The shooter was stopped within three seconds, preventing further carnage by a law-abiding citizen carrying a firearm. He's a hero. You're a moron. Stephen Miller. Security guard with a gun stopped it, so clearly it's working. Another tweet he did. Texas is doing it right. An armed member of the congregation stopped it. Maybe read the whole story, Beta. But what did our supposed to be the guy we want to be our president, Biden, say? Well, it sounded a little something like this. We have Brianna with a question about gun control. Hello. Um, So with the tragedy that just happened in Texas, my question is, how do you justify the Democratic view on gun control when the shooter was stopped by a man who was legally licensed to carry a gun? Well, first of all, uh, the kind of gun being carried, he shouldn't be carrying. Uh, Assault weapons are... uh, I I wrote the first, the last serious gun control law that was written and was law for 10 years, and it outlawed assault weapons and it outlawed weapons with magazines that had a whole lot of bullets and so you can kill a whole lot of people a lot more quickly number one number two it's just rational to say certain people shouldn't have guns now the fact that some people with guns are legally able to acquire a gun and they turn out to be crazy after the fact that's that's life there's nothing you can do about that but we can save a lot of lives and we've stopped tens of thousands of people from getting guns who shouldn't have guns Wait a minute, I thought you said we're supposed to just have a shotgun. Just get a shotgun out there. You don't need a gun, you need a shotgun. Bam! Yeah, well, I guess he's he's in a Democratic crazy election where he's got to change every position he's ever had. 
The shooter did make a statement. I just want to thank all who have sent their prayers and comments in the event today. The events at West Freeway Church of Christ put me in a position that I would hope no one would have to be in. But evil exists, and I had to take out an active shooter in a church. Thankful to God that I have been blessed with the ability and desire to serve him the role of head of security at the church. Very sad in the loss of two dear friends and a brother in Christ. But evil does exist in this world, and I and other members are not going to allow evil to succeed. Please pray for all the members of their families this time. Thank you for your prayers and understanding. Tony, well, he's already paid for his dues. He'll take the class next week. He'll submit it, and he'll have my concealed carry it over the Internet. I won't be able to go into every establishment with the basic concealed, but I will be able to carry my Smith & Wesson M&P 9mm. And once again, I'm not doing it because of all those Mexicans or black people or terrorists. I'm doing it because the world's pretty fucking dangerous right now. My wife wants me to because people are getting shot on I-24 because of road rage twice. Just this fall. One dude almost died. So, yeah. So let's move to some media hate. We'll start with John Harwood. He's getting trolled for saying journalists are too fair to the fundamentally broken GOP. So Chuck Todd starts it. Now everybody's going to do it. On Sunday, Harwood responded to a tweet from Brian Seltzer, who quoted Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan. Yeah, there we go. Another libtard. Lamenting how media objectivity gave power to the GOP. In an unceasing effort to be seen as neutral, journalists time after time fell in the trap of presenting facts and lies as roughly equivalent and then blaming political tribalism for not seeming to know the difference. John Harwood. Good description of the challenge for journalism. Hard for reporters to say plainly the Republican Party at this point in our history is fundamentally broken. But it is. Brian Seltzer. Spot on, Sullivan. And, and he quotes it because he, too, is a liberal tart. Anybody with even a modicum of understanding of the mainstream media political coverage, especially during the Trump administration, knows hardware assertion to be misleading. And as reported by Fox News, conservative across social media have been roundly trolling Harwood for making such a silly argument. The problem with journalism is just too fair to the right. Sounds like a totally not insane thing to say. My goodness, these people have lost all touch with reality. Molly Hemingway said. This is precisely what reporters should not be doing. They should report on political parties without fear or favor and leave it to readers... And viewers, Britt Hume said, actually it's journalism that's fundamentally broken. Trump just helped pull back the curtain, Dan Gaynor of Newsbuster said, and he's so fucking right. The media's broken and overtly biased. Trust is in it is low, and your tweet, John, is an example why. And that's just a normal person. Yeah. But Seltzer and company prove over and over again that Chuck Todd's full of shit with his media misinformation ecosystem. Brian Seltzer. Justice Neil Gorch is on Fox and Friends right now. The question, how is it appropriate for Supreme Court justice to try goose sales of his three-month-old book by chatting on one of the most partisan shows on TV? It is surreal to see three tweets, including one of mine, used as the basis of a long op-ed in Filler Inquirer. Humble suggestion, debate tweets here on Twitter. Use print editorial space for more important and local issues. I'm going to hit this on two things. Number one, this is the second time he's done this. The second time. But it was okay for Kagan. It was okay for Sotomayor. It's okay for Ruth Bader to go all over the place on liberal shows, MSDNC, and hawk their books. 
Number two, his whole fucking network is just about Trump tweets. Without Trump tweets, they'd have nothing to report. He sits all day and just looks at tweets, and he talks about typos and this and that. I mean, seriously, this is what I'm talking about. They live in their bubble. They don't understand how they're seen because they're just told, you're awesome by other libtard journalists. New York Times. Most journalists really are doing their best to treat both parties fairly, but they often wrongly equate balance with the midpoint between the two parties' ideologies. Such leads to frequent bias against Sanders and Warren. That's an actual op-ed by D. Lennart. Just think about that for a second. What negative coverage have you had on Sanders? He talks about socialism, owns 95 fucking houses, nobody says anything. Warren lied about her fucking race, lied about where she raised her kids, has a fucking Medicare reform thing that we cannot play, pay for, runs around saying you didn't build that. Has anybody ever took her to task? And that's a big negatron, Batman. Ghostwriter, the pattern is full. That is not happening. They get free pass. All liberals get free pass. Another one. 2019 outrage cycle over President Trump separating families and putting kids in cage began with a photo taken by the 2014 article from the Arizona Republic. People started tweeting and retweeting the photo, never mentioning it was taken during the Obama administration. But, of course, the Obama administration was scandal-free. Twitter user Designation6 doesn't have a blue check, but he does have more than 100,000 followers. On Wednesday, he explained why Democrats weren't outraged over Barack Obama putting kids in cages. The Democrats who run the media didn't cover it, but they did. Just nobody paid attention. His tweet. Republicans want to know why we are not outraged when Obama started putting kids in cages first. I want to, or uh, kids in a camp first. That's how he said it. I want a Republican to show me the news story from back then that announced this practice. When you don't find it, that is your answer. Everybody, Rolling Stones, New York Times, WAPO, it goes on and on and on. One person listed it, December 2016, Arizona Central, Uh, June 2014, Daily Mail, June 2014, Daily Mail, June 2014, ABC Go, June 30th, 2014, CBS News, June 2014, Tucson.com, July 2014, AOL. I'm going to get to a point in a second, folks. Fiddle master. This means you accept the insane bias of media as reality. You do zero work of your own to find out what's going on and rely entirely on partisan media. Three, it was reported on, it just didn't become a national outrage because the leftist messiah was untouchable. And that's the point. There are NPR articles in here, WAPO articles, New York Times articles. But I keep saying the word article. That's why nobody knew about it. They post negative on Dems online. They might tweet it once. They usually get hammered for it. They retrack it, rewrite the fucking headline. We prove that time and time again on the show. And change it to be more beneficial to Democrats or not really get to the point so a lot of people don't read it. But it doesn't hit airtime. ABC, NBC, CBS, Evening News aren't going to touch it because it's a negative Democrat story. And every one of this gets deep-sexed. 
In the beginning of my show, I ranted ecstatically and repetitively over Abu Ghraib. 160 days above the fold. Front page of the New York Times. That never happens for Democrats. They don't keep running the story. Most of the things I report that are negative on Democrats, I say it. It was posted once and buried. It was posted once and the title was changed. They even did a speech. We just talked about State of the Union, the last one. They had to go rewrite the headlines. New York Times was afraid all their liberal base wouldn't subscribe to the paper anymore. So they rewrote it from uniting to he's a fucking devil. The second part is what this gentleman just said, and it's spot the fuck on. We always hear from our Brian Seltzers and Todd's and the, the whole misinformation ecosystem that we're all stupid fucks because we watch Fox News. Fox News is putting out the misinformation. That's why people in America are stupid. But this story never came out on liberal media. It will never come out on liberal media. So you have a wahoo like this who runs around and says, well, you know, we would have got upset, but we didn't know. What's because your media is just like Fox News, except worse. It's 24-7 negative. CNN is nothing but a PR arm. MSNBC is a communication branch for the DNC. That's just how it is. And then lastly, liberals don't look for facts. Liberals are based on emotion. That's why the Democratic Party doesn't put facts out. They don't care about facts. Facts don't mean a fucking thing. They only mean it if Donald Trump says something that's not factual. Because they know they can get their base to the poll with bullshit and they'll eat it. They'll eat it with a spoon. I will guarantee you line up the resistance, woman march, anybody, Page in Oregon, who I haven't talked about forever. They don't know anything negative on Obama. And if you showed them, if you showed them a New York Times article, they would say it's fake. Because they don't believe their side would ever do anything wrong. They're perfect. They're anointed. They're here to save us all. Brian Seltzer covers something. I just want you to think about if this was Obama. Perpetual Outrage Machine tweets about stirred multiple right-wing media segments of stories about this. CBC removed Donald Trump from Home Alone 2. The entire world says, what the fuck? If that was Obama, would it not be news? Would CNN not cover it? Talk about the racist CBC. Then we have a one that I just love because it's it's once again this ecosystem system of misinformation. Politifact, Politifact reader poll for 2019 lie of the year exposes dramatic tilt of its readers. One reason the independent site, and that's in quotes, Politifact leans strongly to the left is its audience relies on tips from its fans, select many of its fact checks. And so when PolitiFact tweeted today a reminder to look at the reader's poll for 2019 lie of the year, the readers overwhelmingly favored fact checks of President Trump, 
Almost 88% of the votes went to three Trump claims. Number one, there's never been or ever been an administration more transparent. The first so-called secondhand information whistleblower got my phone conversation almost completely wrong. Originally, almost all model predict Dorian would hit Alabama. Then we get into other ones. U.S. tariffs in China are not hurting anybody in the United States. Between 27,000 and 200,000 Wisconsinites were turned away from the polls. That was a lie. The vast majority of San Francisco homeless people also come in from, and we know this, from Texas. Remember, after the shooting in Las Vegas, Trump said, yeah, yeah, we're going to ban bump stocks. Did he ban stocks? No. No. That's why I don't use PolitiFact. It's it's not. It's like YouGov. YouGov was pretty down the middle. YouGov is nothing but liberals now. You check the results on any polls, it's all liberal, all the time. To show that the media can't let things go, here's Poppy Harlow talking about Merrick Garland last week during an impeachment conversation. Yeah, three words, mutual assured destruction. (laughs) That is what Senator Mitch McConnell told his Republican uh, colleagues. This is why he doesn't want to call any witnesses. You hear the president talking about sort of having this other uh, trial when it comes to Joe Biden and bringing in Hunter Biden and sort of using the trial to pivot to going after his opponents. Uh, the, the Senate majority leader has said he doesn't want to do that because if we, if they do that, this opens, uh, Republicans up to increased pressure like we're mm. seeing right now to call in these firsthand witnesses about Ukraine, Mulvaney, Bolton, uh, Pompeo. And I think Republicans know Republicans do know privately when you talk to them, um, you know, not anonymously, that that would be bad for the president and that that would put more pressure on them in terms of an impeachment trial and drag this thing out. And so that is not something they want to do. Um, so I know that they're they're going to continue to feel pressure, including uh, today and in the coming weeks, accord, you know, from after this New York Times story. Yeah. But I mean, again, I think they worry this is just going to hurt the president in the long run. Yeah, well, we know Mitch McConnell can hold out on things like hearings for Supreme Court justices, yeah. so he may be willing to hold his breath on this There's some history too. there. Right. Thanks. My God, let it go. To another factless conversation. Blue check, roadrunner. Trump has appointed 200 lifetime tenured judges, many unqualified. Not one black or Hispanic, not one pro-choice, not one pro-LGBT. Some oppose Brown versus Board of Education. If you are a minority in America, pay attention. This is deliberate and cannot be reversed. Understand it's a white person. The entire world, LB, beyond a reasonable doubt. Lying is so cool. I could go on, but you're a waste of time. Pictures of black Latino, openly gay Filipino, appointed by Trump. To add insult to injury, starts complaining about social media disinformation because a whole bunch of folks called horse pucky on this. Still doesn't admit they're wrong because, God forbid, can't allow truth to get in the way of orange man bad. This is their tweet when they're crushed. I gotta see firsthand how sophisticated the behind the scenes social media disinformation campaign really is. Have one popular tweet that goes against Trump, see hundreds of troll farms accounts with few followers, fake profiles, flood you with negative comments. That's the disinformation I'm talking about. These people believe Trump did win the election because of some troll farms. That's been proven false. And they believe they're doing it. Yet, during the campaign, Showtime ran 
the circus, and they showed Hillary's 30 people in a room trolling people during the election. Democrats actually do it. They troll people. They chase you all over the net. I've talked about the pro-life or the pro-death groups. I've talked about the gay mafia trolling me for fucking a week. It didn't stop for a week. But they're wrong. They get that information. They're told that by politicians. No person on CNN or MSDNC, NBC, ABC, or CBS are going to sit and go, no, that's not true. There's an openly gay Filipino guy. There are a bunch of black guys. There is a woman. They don't, they don't say that because they want the Democrats to get elected. So this is good. It scares people to the poll. That's why we saw in the 2016, we saw in the 2012, we saw in 2008, saw in 2004, we see in 2000. At the end, the only last three months, you're going to get negative stories on the Republican. The contender for the Democratic nomination could literally go out and kill somebody in the street like Trump joked about and they went crazy about. They're not covering it. They're not going to hurt them. The coverage on Hillary's last-minute wiener computer shit was, this is horrible. The FBI is a bunch of fucking goddamn Nazi conservatives. That's how they cover it. They defend. New York Times, Katuki, 2010's a dark and divisive new era because of Trump. Just like, I'm not reading it, just like Todd. This is just a tissue of lies. Dan Savino, when this guy with Trump derangement syndrome went to steal a Trump-Pence campaign, campaign sign, there was one problem. It was electrified. Let's be clear, this Trump official is calling for violence against those, this is Dan Obadiah, who opposed Trump, period. There are stakes for 2020. I can assure you that before this campaign's over, Team Trump will go far beyond suggesting violence to keep Trump in power, it's because CNN ran a story of what people were doing to protect their Trump signs. Signs aren't just being stolen. This one went up in flames, torched by a guy in his underwear in Platteville, Wisconsin. The signs owners were burned up, especially when they recognized Mr. Underwear. Oh, I think that's our neighbor, our tenant. Now, ex-tenant. So many Trump signs are being swiped that yard sign defense techniques are being deployed. Like using bike chain lubricant to make them slippery and messy, or worse yet, try dog poop, or replace your signs with something they can't steal. I'm going to keep cutting it like this till Trump's elected. An Indianapolis man used fishing wire and string spray-painted green to fasten down his Trump sign. She loses her footing and lost her grip and she went flying. When one sign stealer gave up, the owner followed him. Shoves me with both hands, knocks me down. Another owner electrified his sign to zap a would-be thief. You hear less about Hillary signs being swiped, though this Florida woman has to bring her signs in at night. And this woman had someone come up to her door. Why are you voting for that? And she pointed to my sign. And I was totally appalled. Talk about a game of cat and mouse. Imagine using a mouse trap to protect your Trump sign. New Hampshire State Representative Gary Hopper calls sign stealers. The liberal commie scum. And demonstrates with a disclaimer. But I want to tell you something you shouldn't do. Don't hook a six-volt battery up to a mouse trap and then to firecrackers so when someone moves the sign, 
But even worse than stealing signs, who would abscond with a cardboard cutout of the Donald? Cut it out, people. This is shocking. Genimo, CNN. Now that's a 2016 video that they're peddling back out again about how horrible Trump people are, how horrible CNN says these people defending their Trump signs, but nobody wants to talk about why are Democrats stealing signs? Why? I mean, we just had a story that somebody stole a gay flag, and that was a hate crime. Hypocrites, all of them. Which leads me to our last story before we go off into college crazy, a very short gay shit, and close this show out. Fox News draws highest annual viewership in channels 23-year history. Primetime rating for Fox News Channel reached a new average of 2.5 million viewers per night in 2019, making the most watched network in the state slate of basic cable TV programming. That's not just cable news. It's number one in all cable TV. Meanwhile, liberal MSDNC came in third place with an average of 1.75, while CNN fell behind its rivals to 22nd place with an audience of over 972,000. According to an article posted by Monday by Joe Concha, media reporter and columnist for the Hill newspaper, the numbers came from Nielsen Media Research, which stated that ESPN drew an audience of 1.75 to end the year in second place. Concha also noted the victory by Fox marks the channel's fourth straight year of dominance. In addition, FNC scored four of the top five shows, with Hannity reaching 3.3, Tucker 3.1. Rachel Maddow came in third with 2.78. Ingram Angle, the five, both garnered 2.5 million. If executives of CNN hoped their programs would fare better during the week before Christmas, those inf- those expectations were dashed by a strong showing of new holiday programs on Hallmark Channel. <laughs> David Choi, a news reporter for Business Insider, noted that Hallmark racked up more than 1.7 million overall viewers in prime time during the time that CNN could only draw 1.5. Choi added that the ubiquitous greeting cards and gift company produced more than 100 movies in 2019, nearly half of which were related to Christmas. That time was also a good week for two Fox News primetime shows, Carlson and Ingram. Those ratings took place despite a push from original content by CNN. Its Democratic presidential primary debate jointly hosted with New York Times October. In October, CNN boasted a pile of town hall hours with Democratic presidential candidates. Fox News continued its 50-week streak of beating its competitors in total viewership. As Newsbuster previously reported, the dominance of FNC and cable TV has continued, while MSNBC appears to have won the fight for second. CNN is experiencing sharp drops. Sharp drops. They keep losing people. So to get to the important stuff, let me see. Do they have a, a, a list? Hmm. I'll find it. I'll find the list and do it on the next show because I want to see what they were beat by. I'm wondering if the Food Network beat them because they probably did. So, music break. It's an old song, but I listened to it a lot this year. It's Greta Van Cleek. Fleet. <laughs> Greta Van Fleet. And that will take us straight in to College Crazy.
poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Trying to get crazy with this scene. Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Law professor, Trump should do the patriotic thing and resign. Yeah. University of Baltimore law professor, this is from CNN op-ed. F. Michael Higbotham, who's also running for Congress as a Democrat, and that's the end of that. Compared to Nixon, brought in everything negative, yeah, go fuck yourself. University of Miami warned students about using the dismissive phrase, Okay, boomer! Oh, no! A lot of boomers are progressive. University of Miami is warning students of the implication of using the phrase OK Burma, a term that the school says may be considered offensive. University recently called a student's attention to the potentially problematic use of the dismissive phrase in a post by Associate Director of Communication and Public Relations, Barbara Gutierrez, published on the university news site. The post explained to students that the phrase that may have debuted on social media platform TikTok is perceived by older folks as a manifestation of polarization and intolerance for diverse views. An intolerance, as the school points out, seems to be prevalent in today's society. Others blame it on a pent-up frustration by newer generations who have inherited a planet plagued by the ravages of climate change, increased student debt loan, and an economy that makes it difficult for them to lead independent lives. And that's when I say, suck a fuck a fat dick, I inherited a fucking world that was still under nuclear war. At the ending, Donna Spivey, who attests that she's a proud boomer, I attended college in the 60s and I experienced the honor and pleasure of coming of age in what was, without a doubt, the greatest era of consciousness building in the American nation. As a boomer, you experience the world at war and at peace, the civil rights movement, and the many tumultuous social, political, and intellectual struggles around you every day. And I did it on LSD. Fucking anything that moved. I would never say, okay, boomer, because I think boomers are the reason our country's fucked. It started this counterculture crazy shit that gets us teen drag kids. UK academics said to launch virus software for online hate speech. Oh, my God. It's not bad enough. Everybody else is doing it now. You're not going to be able to type dickhead. Uh, Research is one of the world's oldest universities hope to launch a technology that allows users to block online hate speech, much like a computer virus. Users will be able to decide whether or not they want to view content with the help of a hate-o-meter. Cambridge, University of Cambridge, the largest social media companies in the world, may soon have the ability to parentively quarantine content classified as algorithm as hate speech. It was published in the Ethics and Information Technology. So I'm drinking some coffee because I'm out of Monsters. I know I'm pretty low energy today. (laughs) The proposal involves software that uses an algorithm to identify hate speech in much the same way an antivirus program detects malware. It would then be up to the viewer of such content to either leave it 
or quarantine it. Ullman Tolman argued the exposure to online hate speech is a type of harm which is serious as other subtypes of harm, and that social media users deserve protection for such harm. My little brother in Oregon pretty much already knows what I'm about to say, which is, if you can't handle some words, man, you're fucking really sucking bad in life, man. Bullets are going to get your goddamn attention. Professor, white, elite, feminists perpetuate colonial idea of womanhood. And I told you it was going to start. A lot of this woman, you white women need to make your, not listen to your men and vote Democrat. Two college professors recently collaborated to write a book discussing the harmful nature of white women within the feminist movement. They argued that elite women harm the feminist movement with their monolithic and colonial definition of what it means to be a woman. Professor Noelle Chaddock and Beth Hinterlitter dive into the cultural feminism to determine how and why so many feminists are by default white feminists that ultimately harm the unit, the, the movement. The book's publisher describe antagonizing white feminists as a work that pushes back against the exclusive nature of women-centered academia, which supposedly creates barriers by narrowing and define who can participate. The book argues that elite women who are unwilling to do the necessary emotional work around their privilege, too often co-opt, intersectional feminism, creating a heteronormative cisgender colonial idea of woman. The author contends that those concerned with keeping certain spaces specific to women do a disservice to feminism by making it less inclusive. The author argues that feminism was include, must include trans women, which is dudes, fam, women of color, queer women, gender variant, and gender nonconforming scholars in order to disrupt the exclusionary basis of monolithic understanding of feminine. Chaddock is the current Vice President of Equality and Inclusion at Bates College in Maine. She has held previous administration's position at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and the State University of North New York College of Cortland. Uh, Tennessee probably ran her the fuck out. In the opening of the book, the professor first mentioned white feminism in the context of allies, a term allies used commonly on college campuses across the nation, and designed to describe those who support groups such as women, people of color, or the LGBTQ EIEIO community. While allies are generally considered to be positive influences, these professors suggest that white feminists are not true allies of feminism. In reference to a related book that professors wrote together, the book explains that allies rely on required even the continual oppression of their ally subject. What the fuck, fuck? Included in the professor's criticism of white feminism is their concern about the effect that white women in particular had on the outcome of the 2016 election. Ba-boom! Tony's right! The ending, white women were at the, were and continue to be willing to vote against their, their and their daughter's self-interest to serve the racist and xenophobic ends of the Trump administration. Hmm. Okay. We'll work on that. Time for gay shit. Hey, hey, hey. Bow, bow, bow. Lil pump and cut. Hey, gang shit, 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 gang shit. Excuse me, this is the women's room. I know. Oh, it is? There are three men in the ladies' room. 
Whoa, 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 hold on a minute. I'm a woman. I'm not. Uh, I'm not either. Yeah, we just followed him. I'm a woman. We didn't know. We just followed him. Well, her. I think you should all leave. Excuse me? Yeah, let's leave. Uh-uh, don't, no, no, no. We're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We should. Why would I leave? Yes, you should. You have no right to talk to me like that. Excuse me? Oh, I think you heard me. Who do you think you are? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to tell you? I'll tell you who you are. You are a small-minded cunt. Oh! Hey! I can say it! Look at you. In your fucking bullshit, hetero, and gender-normative, beige-ass life. My God, the way your fucking mind works. I bet people like me have no value in your world because you don't know where we fucking fit. We're at a fucking Dolly Parton concert, sister. Look around. You're fucking ignorant. Why can't I just go to the bathroom and fucking pee? Why do you constics make everything difficult? Does anybody know how hard life is? I've got some idea, but keep going, honey. Thank you so much. See, I have to be part of her. Because? Because of my OCD? I have to wash my hands like 40 fucking times in this filthy-ass bathroom. And I don't have the fucking luxury to come in and come out. No, I have to wash and wash and wash until I get screamed at or, like, fucking insulted. You all make my life suck! My life is worse than everybody else's! Okay, except for her. My life is pretty good, actually. See? She has an easier life than me. You want to know why? Because people don't fucking hate her on sight. And let's be honest, everybody feels sorry for her. Um, disabled people are not the yardstick to measure how much shittier your life could be. Okay. I know that was a lot. You know what? I can see that I went over a little bit. What I'm just trying to tell you is that life is hard and I'm just having a hard time and I... Are you really enough? Yes. Your religion is at the heart of my misery. I just really love Dolly Parton. <gasps> was... Oh yes, that's so nice. That's a um LGBT comedy series. Screams at none. Your religion is at the heart of my misery. It kind of just keeps justifying what I keep saying. They they got serious problem with Christians and. Christians just kind of ignore them. Maybe that's it. Maybe because we ignore them, we're bad. I don't fucking know. This is so dangerous, but this is our media. This was reported in our media, multiple sources, and it's totally bullshit. Trans children sense their gender identities as young ages, study suggests. Their confidence their gender identity is generally as strong as that of assist gender children. The moment you do a study and you use trans language, I call bullshit. 
Transgender children may start to identify with toys and clothing type typical of their gender identity from very young age, a recent study suggests, and their confidence in their gender identity is generally as strong as that of the cisgender children, whose identity matches their sex assigned at birth, researchers found. Trans kids are showing strong identities and preferences that are different from their assigned sex, said lead author Selena Gugas said in a press statement. There's almost no difference between these trans and cisgender kids of the same gender identity, both in how and extent to which they identify with their gender or express their gender. For the study, researchers interviewed 317 transgender children, ages 3 to 12, and 189 of their children's siblings. They also interviewed 316 cisgender kids. Sorry, I'm... Fucking... Ladybug just fell on me. Where the fuck's that coming from? Researchers asked the children how much they felt like boy or girl or something else. They also asked about the preferences for toys and clothing. The transgender kids showed strong preferences for toys and clothing typically associated with gender identity, not their assigned sex, the study found. Transgender kids also didn't appear to have preferences much different from cisgender children with the same gender identity, according to the report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The similarities between transgender and cisgender children were surprising. These findings just that children may not be simply learning about gender based on what their parents tell them about their own gender or how they treat them early on, which would be about the gender association with their assigned sex. Instead, the findings suggest that children may be selectively attending to broader social messages regarding the gender they feel they are, said Gulags, who works at the University of Washington in Seattle. Researchers traveled across U.S. and Canada to meet the kids. They met each family for about an hour and decided, well, that's it. We know what's going on. Children in the cisgender groups of their family lived in the Seattle area and answered all the same questions as family as transgender kid. One limitation of the study is that all transgender kids lived in a family that affirmed their current gender identity, the study team notes. Their experience might not reflect what would happen for transgender youth who lived in less supportive environments. And there it is! Just like that little kid. Does mommy say you're a girl? Yeah. Razor. One limitation of the study is that all transgender kids lived in families that affirmed their gender identity. In other words, 100% cherry-picked from parents who support the assumption and conclusions of the researchers and this journalism outlet. Kinda big caveat. All the kids lived in the family. This is exactly what GLAD did. This is the stuff I reported on the show. They only use GLAD-appointed kids, people who are in their mafia. And that's how they failed on their studies. Because 80% of their mafia didn't reply. And instead of saying, hey, 80% didn't reply, they just let it go. Because they got to reaffirm what the bullshit they want to affirm, which is, this is natural. This isn't a mental illness. You're a piece of shit if you're not sterilizing your kid. Joe Cobart. In other words, a study, despite the inherent flaws, is being promoted as scientific. It should be done, have gone straight to the garbage can. Another person. Genuine question. Why are children who like particular toys necessarily a different gender and not just the same gender who like particular toys? What toy is typical of given gender identity? Aren't we supposed to deconstruct the stereotypes? Isn't that the fucking fact? I mean, this all started with Target, or Target, saying that we're not going to put standardized colors on the kids' toy department. Because that's inappropriate to gender-fluid people. 
It's a good question. They won't answer it. Stuck in the middle. Wait, I heard gender was just a social construct, so aren't we doing away with the idea of gender-specific toys? So there are girl things and boy things, but then we're breaking our necks to make everything gender neutral because gender is just a social construct. So then how do we tell if a kid is transgender if they can't play with a boy-girl toy, wear boy-girl clothes? It's so true! It's so true! So my son plays with dolls, he's a trans? What the fuck? This is such a regression in societal progress. Amy Zanotti. When did gender nonconforming suddenly become trans? I wore overalls and loved dinosaurs for years of my childhood. I'm not trans. My good friends had dressed in conforming to gender norms until he was 26. As a very young child, I loved playing with cars, wearing jeans, trainers, and tracksuit bottoms, and doing sports. I hated pink and dresses. None of them at my vagina should have been a penis. <laughs> I love you! Abigail McGinn. AG conservative. For the study, researchers interviewed 317 transgender kids from 3 to 12. Stop it. No responsible medical professional or human being would diagnose a 3-year-old with gender dysphoria. This is dangerous nonsense. Let kids be kids. Liam Daniels. I used to play with my cousin's Barbie dolls when I was little, and I'm glad my parents did not inject hormone blockers into me. Liberals are crazy. Another person, a female. I love boy things as a girl and would tear off my ruffled pink girl clothes in favor of transformer tees and jeans and speakers. I still love guy stuff, but I also love my woman body. I'm so glad I was told I was, I, I wasn't told I was gender dysphoric and given hormone blockers and had somebody remove my boobs. Heather Champion said, academia is insanity. They're just twisting to wherever the fuck they want. And then, Beginning of the year, or in and out, I can't remember. Slasher, my wife loved it. It was on fucking Hulu, and they turned into a gay show. Well, here's Hulu, specifically wanted gay slasher movie. Apparently, Hulu thinks we need to start 2020 knowing that gay slasher movie is now a genre. The Los Angeles Times reported that Hulu specifically wanted a gay slasher movie, so the streaming site into the Dark Horror Anthology series celebrates the new year with the, what is described as gleefully remixing familiar gender tropes with distinctly gay subject matter, already the new decade is going downhill. The December 27th episode, Midnight Kiss, follows the setup of every slasher flick, a group of friends traveling to Palm Springs' house to celebrate New Year's only to be hunted down by mass killer. The only real twist of this story is that four out of the five of the group are gay men with only one straight girl in the pack. Somehow this makes the story, along with the predictable twist being that the killer is jealous, revolutionary. What the show also considers revolutionary is the fact that a good half of the nearly 90-minute episode is also focused on the sexual and romantic side of gay men. By that, I mean we see a lot of flamboyant flirting, casual sex and hookups, and even near-full nudity on three separate occasions. If this is what the show thinks is realistic or appealing to the masses... I'm even more disappointed in Hulu. Make no mistake, we do have to assume that this was the episode wants to do. In an interview with Trevino, actor Scott Evans explained, I feel this one minus the homicide half is really correctly illustration a type of weekend with associates on this neighborhood, or at least in my world. The correct illustration refers to include public threesome and a night rave pumped with drugs and nearly naked men thrusting themselves at each other. The killer isn't even that much excluded considering he wears a mask referring to a gay kink known as pup play. At this point, the realistic illustration is worse than a stereotype. 
course, this doesn't stop people from believing this episode still means something in terms of representation. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Evans referenced the milestone of having a mostly gay cast. I hate that this seems groundbreaking. That really sucks, but it's kind of cool. Ironically, though, the actor doesn't show the same consideration to the fact that half the victims in the episode are minorities, stating, but come on, look at the bigger picture. Groundbreaking material, groundbreaking material for me, but not for thee. So, I fucked the intro to this up, because it was Netflix, but they ruined Slasher with nothing but gay shit. So then, Hulu goes, hold my fucking beer. We're going full gay Slasher. And maybe gay people want to see that, that's fine. But to just make a movie, once again, I, I say this as a cis-normative white guy. I know I'm not supposed to speak, period. Not just about this subject, but any subject. But if you're just checking blocks to make a show, I would turn it off even if I was in one of these protected classes. I just think it's stupid when you just throw, gotta have a gay, gotta have a trans, gotta have a black woman, an Asian dude, I gotta have this, I gotta have that. And that's how you're casting shows. Fuck you. Then I got this from, I want to say, Matt in Oregon or my wife. I can't remember, so to both of you, I apologize. Motorcyclist who identifies as a bicyclist sets cycle world record. And this is from the B. In an inspiring story from the world of professional cycling, a motorcyclist identified as a bicyclist has crushed all the regular bicyclists, setting an unbelievable world record. In a local qualifying race for the World Road Cycling League, the motorcyclist crushed the previous 100-mile record of 3 hours and 13 minutes, which is an amazing new score of well under an hour. Professional motorcycle racer Judd E. Banner, the brave trans vehicle rider who allowed to race after he told league organizers he already felt like a bicyclist in the motorcyclist's body, look, my ride had handlebars, two wheels, and a seat. He told reporters that he accepted a trophy for an incredible trial. Just because I've got a little extra hardware, such as a 1170cc flat twin engine with 110 horsepower, doesn't mean I have any kind of inherent advantage. Banner also said he painted the word Huffy on the sides of his bike, ensuring he had no advantage over the bikes that came out of the factory's bicycles. Some critics say he needs to cut off his motor in order to make the competition fair, but he quickly called these people bigots, and they were immediately banned from professional cycle racing. (laughs) And that, my friends, sums it up. It just sums it up! down you're the next contestant on liberal well i said i was gonna make one and there it is yeah it's time for liberal shit this is a tweet from a couple weeks ago but it's been making the rounds um, it was tweeted, the same person tweeted on Christmas Eve. If billionaires didn't exist, poverty wouldn't either. Anthony Clark is a democratic socialist running for college. 
And this is what he tweeted. Ally is a verb. Comrade is a verb. Friend is a verb. Partner is a verb. Homie, squad, bro, sis, family, gang, accomplice. If you're not actually trying to earn a title, you probably ain't it. So, comrade. Yeah, they're already starting to spin that. You know, comrade, which has a very negative connotation with anybody who served during the Cold War. I mean, I, I never got my certificate. I, I could have, but I did not. And... Yeah, that's that's not. Then we had the uh, salon piece, which I don't know if I covered this or not, but it's about Christmas. Hallmark Christmas movies were fascist propaganda. Forget triumph of the will. The Han- uh, this is a long article, but I'm going to read it anyway. The Hallmark Channel's been having a rough go of it past few weeks. Cable TV behemoth, which has been minting money with this patented holiday season schmaltz through widespread criticism earlier this month when it pulled an ad for wedding company Zola that featured lesbians. The company initial excuse was they did not allow ads to feature overt display of affection, claiming the policy is regardless of participants. This was obviously nonsense. A couple kissing at weddings, not only not a tray, but generally seen as mandatory and features in the channel's numerous rom-coms. Unsurprisingly, critics quickly found plenty of examples of straight snogging on the channel that shows the sexual orientation was the sole reason for the ad poll, that the Hallmark was clearly responding to a right-wing pressure campaign claiming the lesbian kiss ruined the channel's family-friendly offering. Hallmark then flip-flopped, apologized for pulling the ad, and claimed they have been a progressive pioneer on television for decades and committed diversity and inclusion. Which is, of course, laughable to anyone who is ever glancing knowingly of channel's offering. Running down this year's schedule of Christmas movie offering is like a trip into the uncanny valley of shiny teeth, blow-dried, heteronormative whiteness with only a few token movies with character of color. It's like watching the Stepford Wives with scarier since the evil plot to replace normal people with robots is n- never actually revealed. None of this should be a surprise because Hallmark movie movies, as coying and as saccharine as they are, constitute the platonic ideal of fascist propaganda. This is probably a startling statement to some. When most of us think about fascin- fascinatingly propagandist movies, we think of grotesque grandeur of Lenin Raff's film celebrating the Third Reich. Grand but cold sweeping shots of soldiers goose-stepping, flags waving, all meant to inspire awe and terror. But the reality is, even in Nazi Germany, the majority of movies approved by the Nazi minister of propaganda, Goebbels, were escapist and feather light with Hallmark movie-style emphasis on the importance of normality. There's plenty of reasons that empty-headed kitsch fits neatly in the authoritarian worldview. It's storytelling that imitates the gestures of emotion without actually engaging with real feelings. The Hallmark movies steer clear of real passion or deeper emotions that tend to be the engine-driving, more artful fiction. Characters who have had r- real feelings, after all, can prompt empathetic reactions to audience and empathy for others in the greatest single threat to the authoritarian mindset. And so Schmaltz walks through the pa- place of love without touching any of the messy but compelling realities of it. Instead of characters driven by real feelings, therefore the guiding hand of normalcy pulls the character along through narratives, and unsurprisingly, the idea of normalcy doesn't have a lot of room for the true diversity of American experiences. This is which much is evident in the effort to include Jewish characters in recent Hallmark holiday movies, which, by all accounts, seem like a complete disaster, in part because the rule of normalcy reorients everything towards a very narrow, sentimentalized version of Christmas. In the Hallmark Lifetime Cinematic Universe, Hanukkah and the character Characters that celebrate it exist only in relation to Christmas. Nancy Coleman of the New York Times complained, adding that the Hallmark movie Holiday Date could, with remarkably little editing, turn into a Jewish get out. Hmm. 
Brittany D. Klatz, writing for Washington Post, and says the same thing. The drama hinges on Jewish characters being compelled to observe Christmas. Sadly, it's hard to imagine being any other way. The qualities that people cite when they defend Hallmark, comforting, formulaic, formulaic, soothing, are all results of aggressively conformist impulses that drive them, and that impulse and fealty to the dominant culture stands in direct contrast to the value of diversity Hallmark claims to hold. Hallmark movies, with their emphasis on returning home and the pleasure of the small domestic life, also send a not-to-all subtle signal of disdain for cosmopolitanism, curiosity about the larger world, which is exactly the sort of attitude that helps breed the kind of defensive white nationalism that we see because of Trump. If you don't believe me, listen to Authoritarians Themselves at the Federalist, which is Ground Zero website for generating, frankly, fascist culture war arguments. Hans Fiends argues that, culturally speaking, Hallmark movies are noticeably Christian. By this, Fiend is taking, talking about the characters who actually go to church or pray. Even self-identified conservative Christians don't want to see that. But a set of patriarchal and authoritative values that are more often white evangelicals define themselves as an ethnic group and not about genuine feeling of spirituality. The movies always depict a heroine who begins the story loving her self-involved life. The city chooses family and life. Last remaining hideout for those who want a fancy world where the cynicism and immorality of modern life aren't allowed. By cynicism and immorality, Finn explains he's talking about fornication and acceptance of sex sexual deviance, by which he means LGBT people, and that's not what he says. She goes on, trashes fucking million moms... It ends in, ultimately, there is probably no way to square the claim to believe in diversity with fashionistic impulse that guides the current crop of Hallmark movies, which center already always around those, frankly, mega-style ideas about the what constitutes real America. As the Jewish movies show, the best Hallmark can do is some token diversity that swipes out most of what makes people actually diverse. Money comes from selling a vision of America that increases authoritarian conservatives wish to believe what has existed and can be restored again. An America that excludes most of an increasingly urban, racial, diverse, cosmopolitan nation that won't change no matter how many inclusive Zola ads the network airs. I missed this. Everybody else didn't. And here's her reply. Laughing at the right-wingers calling me joyless because I think Hallmark movies are dumb. I think someone someone's life is joyless if their only source of entertainment is such empty schmaltz. What a depressing life, free of real satisfying entertainment and hobbies. Somebody said, you didn't say they're dumb, you said they're fascist. This caused many people to laugh out loud. So you only brought a brief bit of comedic joy to Christmas for so many. Now, why did I cover this? Uh, our, Amanda Marcotte hates everything. She's a feminist, now gay-pushing fucking asshole. But it's exactly what I said. Even if they had them bumping and grinding, it's racist, it's white, it's this. You must really be a hateful person to hate on Hallmark movies. Old people watch those. I only watch Angel Falls, The Christmas Wish, and Angels in the Snow. There's only three movies I've ever watched, and that's because Christy Swanson. I support her, because she's one of the few conservative females that has a platform. But they don't watch the movies. But that's how hateful this gay mafia is. Liberals are. That's why I put it in the liberal shit. You will protest something you will never, ever, ever, ever use. It doesn't matter. It could be a gun shop. That you find out they don't give discounts to gay people. 
you'd be protesting it, but you don't want anybody to have guns. Or something just trivial. That's you. You just have to hate on everything that's not you. You have to twist everything. Hallmark movies are now goals. They're Nazis. Did you catch it? Every reference is back to Nazis. So now, Hallmark are a bunch of Nazis. Okay. Then we have Teen Vogue stirred up some controversy on Christmas Eve by reposting a condescending article arguing that every reader used her privilege as a white person to protect people of color. We were away from Twitter for most of Christmas Day, so we missed Teen Vogue celebrating the holiday by re-upping its guide to anal sex. Teen Vogue, welcome to Anal Sex 101. Man, is Teen Vogue on a roll today or what? Why would you put that on on Christmas? And the other article, Antifa grows out of a larger revolutionary politics that aspires to forward creating a better world. But the primary motivation is to stop racists from organizing. Somebody said, so they beat up veterans in wheelchairs? They put that article out on Christmas. Teen Vogue grows out of SJW politics that aspires towards creating a fascist world, but the primary motivation is to tell easily disproved lies to the masses stupid enough to still be in publication. That's what somebody said. (laughs) I'd read their Antifa. It is like they are so heroic. That was Christmas at Teen Vogue. New York Times then went after men who haven't seen Little Women. Yeah. Feminists demand that men must love feminist movies, even movies based on classic literature with plucky women in period costumes. On Friday, New York Times published an opinion piece with a headline, Men are dismissing Little Women. What a surprise. The rejection of the latest screen adaptation of beloved novel echoes a long-held sentiment towards women-centered narratives. Writer Christy Eldridge presented the case for the prosecution. Little Women has a little man problem. So reads the headline for the article on Vanity Fair website this month about the latest screen adaptation of the beloved Lewis May Alcott novel. If you got a hyphen name, you're a douchebag. The film has been lauded by critics and essentially possesses many of the qualities award voters look for. A-list class, cast, a res- respected actress turned director, and beloved source. But so far has been noticeably underrepresented during award season. Two Golden Globe nominations and zero Screen Actor Guild nods. And Vanity Fair describes the audience at early advanced screenings as overwhelmingly comprised of women. One of its producers, Amy Pascal, told the magazine she believes many male voters have avoided it because of the unconscious bias they have. A look at the SAG nomination, which is they were very partial to the anti-Fox News film Bombshell, which is at least a woman-centered and feminist as Gerwin's umpteenth iteration of Alcott. They nominated Charlie Theron for outstanding performance by a female actor, as well as Nicole Kidman and Margot Robbie in supporting roles, and the whole cast for outstanding performance by a cast of motion picture. And Eldridge admitted maybe these voters prefer modern-day feminism over 19th-century feminism. After a long exploration of Alcott faced literally chauvinism in her day, Eldridge admits that several male film critics have given it enthusiastic reviews, but this article shouldn't have to be written. Yet this concern even existing begin with this disheartening. If many men haven't wanted to give it a chance because they don't think it meant it's meant for them, we still have a long way to go in considering all kinds of narrative about women to be deserving of thoughtful attention. A man can love a woman without loving chick flicks. They also don't need to obsess over The Bachelor or adore Taylor Swift movies. Liberal journalists always have to find any whiff of discrimination or sexism they can detect 
But as my old colleague and friend Dan Issel observed, I wonder if the New York Times ran any stories about how women didn't go see Rambo. That's not to say the update iteration Rambo was any good. And that's it. But it goes back to what we talk about. Why do you have a feminist movement? There is no gender. And if you have a feminist movement, you are anti-trans. You're a turf. Exclusionary. Then, little women's just too white. Teen Vogue penned its own review of the claim adaptation of American classic. It turns out the Civil War era epic about a family of women struggling against misogyny, gender-biased expectation, and institutionalized sexism in time is too white. It's a time that classics that are constantly remade to better incorporate rate, racial diversion. Diversity. Teen Vogue astute film critic Natalie DeVere Abadeos, hyphen name, douchebag, and Little Women must be the first to go. Casting at any female lead as race bent that is filled the roles of non white actors would be difficult, DeVere Abadeos, because the film's protagonists, <coughs> four sisters, Joe, Beth, Megan, Beth, and Mamie, and their mother are all related. B. DeVere Abadeos says there's at least one character, Lori, the love interest of two of the sisters, who could have been portrayed by a person of color. Sorry, I had phlegm on my throat. I was wheezing. DeVere Abadeos uses the film's source material, the Lewis May Atcott novel, first published in 1868, as proof that Lori is indeed a person of color, even though it would have been unheard of for many white men of means to pursue a relationship with a minority man during or in the immediate wake of the Civil War. But... You know, rewrite history. Rewrite it. And then we close. I do believe we close. Did we close? <coughs> Let me see. It was very short today. I taped all the New Year's. You know, my New Year's, I, I didn't really talk about it. But, you know, we went to bed like at 10, I think. Um, we don't stay up. We do our kiss. And then we wake up the next morning and watch the countdown and kiss. But this year we didn't because we ran out and had Longhorn uh, Steakhouse dinner. And we did our nighttime kiss to the ball drop in Nashville, which is pretty cool. But we did fast forward, being the wife, and she was bitching the whole time as I was taking down the Christmas tree. To the LGBT-centered CNN New Year's. Now remember, there's two gay men hosting it, there's Don Lemon and gay men, and there's one woman. That's it. <clears throat> that are featured. Then they have a dude that's somewhere and some other lady that last year was doing pot, and this year she was in the tranny bar in Florida. They they pushed a lot of tranny, a lot of tranny guys, just tranniness. And they kept saying, it's going to end bad for you. I've been there, Anderson Cooper said, it's going to end bad. You're hanging out with those guys. going to end bad, which, what was he saying? Was he being trans-exclusionary? I don't know. Nobody brought it up. But we did have this incredible soundbite that, <clears throat> once again, this guy has sat on TV and told us all that we're pieces of shit and deplorable. I gotta ask, is this deplorable? She turned to Anderson and said, he's not gonna ask me who has the biggest bleep of anyone I've ever been with, right? No, it was... <laughs> She turns to me out of the blue and goes, he's not going to ask me who has the biggest cock in Hollywood, is he? Okay. That's what she asked. And just said it. Okay. <laughs> Those are our intellectual betters. It is so bad over there that there's articles. Here's one. 
For one more night of the year, it's a possible tradition for CNN. It's becoming a tradition for CNN to do away with its usual pretense as a serious news network, opting to throw journalistic integrity and any sense of professionalism out the window to make a collective fool of itself. The annual celebration of CNN ring in the new year wouldn't be complete unless Don Lemon gets drunk on live television, even though the spectacle was topped this year by when one of its reporters got in a bathtub of sparkling rum with a mermaid drag man. Accompanied by anchor Brooke Baldwin, Lemon was in Nashville as part of CNN Live New York New Year's Eve coverage, drinking hand. He is seen jamming to a tune, including the singer, whether he's back up vocals or welcome or not. Mood, Don Lemon, New Year's Eve. Um, of course, given Lemon's previous New Year's Eve antics, this is a lot tamer. In 2016, as part of network live coverage, he got his ear pierced. This prompted the hashtag Drunk Don Lemon to start trying on Twitter, which it did again. People are saying that I'm lit. Lemon said at the time, yeah, I'm lit. Who cares? It would have been bare soul on national television about being open to the relationship in 2017 and promised not to be self-centered. The openly gay anchor did get in a relationship taking on a white boyfriend. Back to the present, Lemon tried to top the ear-piercing stuff with a tattoo like the network regular coverage. It's hard to tell whether this was fake news or not. Um, I don't even know what it said. A lot of people didn't. They were really confused. Um, I think it says li- st- uh, Don Lemon 2020. Lemon and skeptical bottle with an in-handed glass of champagne to drink, and while it's not clear what the tattoos say, he claimed to get one on each arm. Social media users were only too happy to fill the void. Don Lemon revealed his new tattoo for the year, and it looks like a campaign slogan, but somebody said, hashtag, still my president. Uh, CNN reporter Brandy Kay was reported live from New Year's Eve celebrating Key West, which came across Queen of the Sea, this being a drag queen and a mermaid getup. I don't think I've ever seen a tail so huge she said that's not the only thing that's huge here honey the drag queen shot back after playing around with co-host andy cohn and anderson cooper we're in times square's new york city about whether the drag queen was single Kay went on with her vaudeville act you're obviously not a little mermaid mermaid right the reporter asked i'm not the biggest either let's put it this way the drag queen replied the only thing missing from the drum roll bottom bum Anderson Cooper. It's not even 10 p.m. yet, and Randy Kay is in Key West, somehow finds herself in the bathtub, a sparkling run with a mermaid. Like, this is just normal. It's okay. This is just what, this is what America is. It was at this point that Kay was pulled in the bathtub. The reporter responded by taking a swig of rum from a bottle she was holding before pouring some on the drag queen. You may recall in 2018, she was in Denver getting a contact high in a marijuana club. The bathtub stuff wasn't a bar- bizarre enough. Don't worry, CNN had more in store for the coverage New Year's Eve. CNN International anchor Richard Quest turned up at Times Square pulling, sporting a cat outfit, mimicking I Am Rum Rum Tiger. Quest would wander around, talk with the crowd. Overall, while the network was making an effort to have a little fun, somehow <clears throat> you get the feel that people would be able to tolerate their usual coverage and news if it done in a similar manner. On a more positive note, though, for what may be the first and only time in 2019, CNN wasn't bashing Trump. <laughs> it's so true. Boston Globe. CNN anchor were drinking an air on New Year's Eve again. This is the Boston Globe. CNN is a distinct New Year's Eve style ring of 2020 by celebrating around the country with correspondence of various stages of intoxication. Uh, they say much to the delight of the viewers. All less than a million. Journalist Anna Cooper and TV anchor, uh, Andy Cohn host of the News Network, musical guests, correspondents, shots of liquor on the air, Jägermeister, Cooper's new program 360 has won nine Emmys, has a habit of making horrified faces while drinking, and CNN appeared to happy to capitalize the viral reaction, which continued throughout the evening. After one of the several shots taken while speaking to rapper 50 Cents, Cooper held his face together long enough for a camera to cut away from the guest, then he gagged. 
later show, just for midnight, Peabody Award-winning anchor asked the age-old question, what is Jaeger? Um, let's see, let's get to the Lemon and Baldwin in Nashville. It turned out the Lemon had a pair of tattoos. Lemon 2020. Baldwin was among those surprised by Lemon's announcement before dismissing the tattoos as fake. What is happening? She says, normally we're on this together. You are generally surprising me. The network didn't deploy breathalyzers on the air, so it's unclear there were not the journalists and hosts involved were actually intoxicated, but they looked to be having a party in 2019. The thing that got me is that by the end, they got trolled. And two people, one of them, a Latina male, Latino, and a white guy pulled out the circle game. And here's my tweet because I watched it the next morning. So funny, Latino kid and unknown trolled CNN with the circle game, and I did the OK symbol, on screen right next to Don Lemon. They deserve the troll. They... They, CNN, hate half the country and continually condescend and disrespect the middle and south of America. Fuck them. Then I tweeted this because we don't know what's going on here. Yada, 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 yada. This is how I really felt about it. As a Tennessean, stay in New Orleans. You and Brooke CNN spent 364 days demeaning and disrespecting the South, the military, Christians, pro-life, say white men are terrorists, white women are enablers. Why come here? We are horrible Americans, right? Hashtag deplorables. That's why I don't know why they came here. I really don't know why they came here. They hate this part of the country. They say we're all horrible human beings. Why would you come to Nashville? Why? And he made a big deal out of it. They said he didn't, but he did. Uh, somebody just did some white supremacy stuff. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. It's called the circle game, you dolt. And then this was flowing around, and I, I just don't understand who gives a fuck. There was a poll that both Trump and Obama won this thing for... Um, most admired person. And that pissed him off. Then, this is a CNN article. Tell me. Tell me. This isn't biased. The Obama and Trump reading list compared. Former President Barack Obama has published his list of favorite books. The former president who is known to read an hour a day towards the end of his presidency has curated a selection that he noted on Instagram as part of the fabric that helps make up life and can hopefully enhance our day-to-day experiences. What a contrast to President Trump's list of books, which he recently promoted on Twitter. While the books that Obama recommends will make readers more well-rounded and informed, Trump's list is filled with books that will make the reader angrier and more supportive of Trump. Even as president, when Obama released his summer reading list, the titles range from books about former President John Adams to novelists like the Bayou Trilogy. Trilogy. None were explicitly about Obama's political agenda or attacking his rivals. Let's take a closer look at Obama's list. They include works from, and I really don't give a fuck, and... Obama also had a numerous thought-provoking non-fictions. Obama shits and gold bullion comes out. When it contrasts to Trump's recommended books, which are almost all designed to do one thing, help Trump politically, that is, in October, Trump praised the book Resistance at all costs. How Trump haters are breaking America. Like Kimberly Strassel, he shows his tweet. In November, Trump took to Twitter to praise the new book, The Plot Against the President. Also making Trump's recommended reading list in November is a book written by his son Donald Trump Jr. 
And let's not overlook Trump's recommended book in 2018 that fit the same mold. There was Fox News host Judge Perino, liars, leakers, and liberals. In short, Trump only promotes books he believes will support his political tenure. Many of them achieve this by furthering the narrative that Trump is a victim of corrupt establishment and that he alone can save the country from Democratic Party hell-bent on his demise. While Obama recommends books are designed to make life a little brighter, Trump books are designed to do the exact opposite, inspiring fear, anger, in the next lecture cycle. That's an article on CNN. Facts first! Yet he... Omits all the shit Obama's books is the same fucking thing. He's got a political book in there. But you're not going to be honest. You're Dean Obadiah. You're just a fucking lib. Fucking assholes. So, we're going to go straight in to our lighter fare. The mighty, mighty, mighty Oregon Ducks win at the Rose Bowl. Herbert's got it. Stiff on. And the Ducks draw first blood. Camden Lewis, the freshman, boots it to the five. Brookshank looking for it. Breeze picks his way. He's in the clear. Dancing down the sidelines. And they catch him now. The Badgers answer instantly. Deeper on first and goal. Herbert will score again standing up. Second touchdown run for the Ducks quarterback, and they reclaim the lead. First start, and now the punch steps bobbled. It is picked up. The Ducks, Brady Breeze to the end zone. A special team disaster for Wisconsin. And he ended up inside. Touchdown, Mason Stockey. Jet sweep, Davis. Lost the ball, comes out, the Ducks have it. Herbert's got it. Stiff arm again, quarterback in the clear. Inside the 10, a hat-trick of touchdown from Justin Herbert. Cristobal gets the ice-cold bath in year two. He's going to end with a Pac-12 championship and a Rose Bowl victory in the Oregon Ducks' career for this. shadows of Austin Stadium. You love the Ducks to be able to finish things off with a victory here in the Rose Bowl. What does that mean to you? It's the best feeling in the world. This is the greatest experience I've ever had. And to be a part of this team and be a part of this program, I'm going to miss it a lot. Justin, congratulations. It's been a pleasure watching you, my friend. Justin Herbert, the great Oregon quarterback, finishes with a victory in the Rose Bowl tonight, Chris, in an absolute classic. Double-figure tackles, forced to fumble, but tell me about the touchdown play that you scored. I mean, that was incredible. You know, we just, uh, one of our guys came in through the gap, made a block, and you know, I just saw the ball, you know, sitting right there in the right place at the right time, and felt like it was a little gift from God, you know, giving me a little touchdown in the Rose Bowl, man. And, you know, we worked so hard for this, and, you know, to 
come and win a Rose Bowl, be Rose Bowl champs, Pac-12 champs, and, you know, it's just such a blessing. I just want to give, you know, all my thanks to God, my family, my friends, and my teammates, and Coach Chris Paul, man. I mean, this is what I dreamed about since I was a kid, and we came here and we did it, and I'm just so thankful. Now, last... That was a quality win. Now, the offense was horrible. Uh, they looked good in the first quarter, and then they went away. But with the turnovers and just riding it out, that's something the Ducks just couldn't do. And then they picked up the number one defensive back yesterday at the Under Armour game. So uh, that defense is just going to get better and better. We score a quarterback. Um, they got a transfer might be coming over. Who knows what the Ducks are going to do. So that was a great way to start 2020. I did not watch the game. Uh, neither did my son. I think we're both a little bit freaked out by it. And it turned out to be a freaky game because it ended at the last second. That one 30-yard touchdown or 30-yard pass when everybody thought we were going to run it literally worked. Um, that's what got us in there. So... Uh, college football's done. We'll see what Clemson and uh, LSU turns out on the 13th. And uh, starting tomorrow, we got some good wild card games. And I'll be bitching sometime in the future about my Packers, I'm sure, because that's the uh, 13th. It's going to be cold, snowy, which might help us. But I have this sick feeling we're going to be playing the Saints, which is really going to suck. So this wraps up another episode in the first episode in 2020 of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOPpodcast, gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter page at FOP. Tony Reed. Our next show will be the 8th of January, Year of Our Lord 2020. I got a doctor's appointment in the morning, but when I come back, I'll knock it out. You'll have it in the afternoon. I wish you and yours nothing but a healthy, happy, and safe 2020. I hope you have nothing but good stuff, wins at your back, and uh, life is good. It can't get much worse in America. That's the way I look at it, but it probably will. I thank you all for listening. I'm going to do the stats for 2019, the next podcast. Single out some listeners uh, if the damn thing will work. Because sometimes I get top listeners one listen. So I really, uh, that's the one thing that my 20 bucks a month does not buy me is good stats. But uh, it was a good year for listening. And I thank every one of you for following. I hope you do in 2020. And make sure you send those emails if there's subjects you do want to hear. Once again, everybody who gets tributes gets a shout-out, and I do incorporate that material. Until next Wednesday, my friends, have a great weekend. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Podcast. Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Makes every day count. I'm the sun.
Particular. 